The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Imagine yourself at 19 years old. Ripped out of your mind on drugs with an M16 in your hand, 50 pounds of gear on your back, and some tropical jungle far, far from home, full of tigers and snakes and tons of creepy-ass bugs and a lot of people who want to kill you. Camped out in a jungle unlike anything you've ever seen in your life, in a land full of people who speak a language you can't even begin to understand, with a helicopter, some canvas tents, and a bunch of other scared young soldiers waiting for enemy soldiers to pop out of a deadly jungle full of booby traps, guns, mortars, and grenades. Your sergeant is high on heroin. Your best friend Tex can't stop itching his crotch, talking about marrying some girl he's just met in Saigon. You didn't sign up to go to this jungle. You lost the lottery. And now you're hearing rumors about people back home spitting on soldiers when they make it back. What the hell is going on? At the same time, some other scared 19-year-old is sitting out in that jungle holding AK-47 the Soviets gave his army. Instead of helping his family farm, he's running through miles of tunnels to dodge bombs and cannons and burning chemicals raining down from the sky. He's sneaking around in the middle of the night, planting bombs and taking sniper shots from the distance before retreating back to those tunnels. He's been told he has to fight evil foreign invaders who desperately want to take his country and end his life. Jesus. I was 19. I was getting drunk and stoned in dorm rooms, playing a game of, I hope I don't wake up in my own bed tomorrow every Friday and Saturday night. They say war is hell, and the Vietnam War was the baby boom generation's hell. The Vietnam military conflict was ugly and bloody and ended with tens of thousands of Americans dead and over a million total meat sacks wiped from the face of the earth. If you really want to get into this dive into Vietnam this week, man, crank up some Fortunate Son by CCR, put in the background. If you don't like that song, I'm, I'm not sure we can even be friends. Maybe listen to a little All Along the Watchtower by Jimi Hendrix. Maybe Gimme Shelter by The Stones or What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. A song written about conversations between Marvin and his brother Frankie who served for three years in Vietnam. A song inspired by Marvin's cousin's death in Vietnam. If you really want to get in the mood for today's show, light up a joint. 
Imagine smoking it in a jungle far, far from anything you've ever known with combat boots on your feet, a machine gun in your hand, and fear in your heart not knowing if you'll ever make it back home. Welcome to a good morning Vietnam edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, suckers. I'm especially fired up for this episode. Man, I don't know why I've uh, had such a fascination with Vietnam for, for so long, but just uh, this week's taking me back to watching Platoon and Full Metal Jacket as a kid and just uh, fantasizing about what life must have been like in those jungles. Get on in here, culturally curious members who aren't afraid to, to jam some knowledge into their noggins. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, Suck Nasty, the banana man, and you are listening to Time Suck. Had to pry myself away from the computer late, late last night to get away from this suck. Could do an entire weekly podcast just on the Vietnam War for years. Recording again in the Suck Dungeon on another lovely spring day here in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho with Queen of the Suck, Lindsay, the Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Zach, Script Keeper Flannery, all in the building. Lindsay, very excited to be assembling some new things in our new office space, prepping for the new podcast coming out sometime in in the next few months. Thanks for the uh feedback many of you have sent in recently. Been saying uh too much. I would never have known that had you not let me know. Working on minimizing my uhs today and going forward, got to smooth out the suck. Got to always keep working on it. I think that's just good kind of for life in general, right? Always keep trying to get a little bit better. Thanks to all the Space Lizards for allowing us to donate $2,200 to a Time Sucker Rand charity this month to Leo Support Foundation. May 15th is Peace Officer Memorial Day, and the week the 15th falls on is Police Week. And in honor of all our law enforcement listeners who do so much for our country, we are donating to the Leo Support Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, raising money to purchase protective and life-saving equipment for police officers based in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and ran by a, a space lizard and officer named Michael Best. Link in today's episode description for anybody who wants to donate additional funds. A lot of thanks to everyone who has rated and reviewed The Suck anywhere this past week. Helped spread The Suck tremendously when you do that. Hail Nimrod to you good sirs and good madams. Got another Ed Kemper shirt in the store. Yeah, yeah, Zapples. The mother baseball tee was so popular. Now we have a Bella Unisex 50-50 cotton poly heather midnight navy tee that says, don't get my Zapples going. I love it. Don't you get my Zapples riled up. It's another Axis Design Kemper-inspired creation. Made out of pure 1 million percent Zapples. Not 100 percent, 1 million percent. That's right. We figured out how to turn insane homicidal rage into soft, not angry at all fabric. Talk about recycling. I love the color of this shirt, the color and the style of the text. This one you really can wear to work. Just maybe don't explain exactly what it means to your boss unless you have a super cool boss with a pretty dark, fucked up sense of humor. Now let's talk about some street team stickers. Round one of the Time Suck Street team wrapped up earlier this year, and it went better than we expected. We were confident in the cult of the curious, of course, but the round one members blew our expectations out of the water. Slapping stickers all around this great country of ours, along with other parts of this for sure round earth. It was amazing to witness. It was so much fun to see their pictures invading social media for months. So with that said, ready to launch round two. This time we're going bigger. So here's the deal. High noon, Pacific time, May 20th. There will be 200 slots available in the Time Suck Shopify store. First come, first surf. Once we run out of spots, that's it for round two. So if you really want to help spread the suck by slapping stickers in your neck of the woods, mark your calendars now. 
Once you reserve your spot, your free stack of stickers will be mailed out. Once you receive your stickers, you'll be hitting the streets. Again, these are not stickers for your personal sticker collection. The goal is to slap the stickers wherever you think people see them. Once you've stuck the suck, snap a pic, upload it to your social media accounts. Accounts, upload it to all of them. And uh, use the hashtag spread the suck. No spaces. Hashtag spread the suck. If you don't tag it with hashtag spread the suck, we can't find it easily online. So make sure to tag the photos with at, with, uh, excuse me, hashtag spread the suck. When round two comes to an end on July 8th, we'll randomly select a winner and the winner will receive over $100 in Time Suck merch. It's going to be a raffle style drawing. Each slap of the sticker increases your odds of winning. So tagging more photos on social media so we can mark that increases your chance to win, spreads the suck that much further. Okay. Okay. Uh, so that's that. Uh, we will we will be talking about this more going forward, but make sure to mark those calendars and reserve your spots. Hoping I had fun shows in Boston this past week and had to record this in advance of those shows. Back in Spokane for another live Ant Hill Kids Suck Sunday, May 19th. So that one's uh, that one's filling up. It's going to be fun. And then on to the Comedy Zone in Jacksonville, Florida, May 30th, 31st, and June 1st. Then off to Omaha, June 7th and 8th. Ticket info for the entire 2019 Happy Murder stand-up tour. So many more cities. DanCummins.tv. Los Angeles and San Diego, is gonna, they're going to end up on the calendar soon. Just waiting for those tickets to go on sale and hopefully have a special announcement, uh, like a taping, uh, to announce here in the next week. Just trying to lock up that venue. Link to the uh, TEDx video. Again, in today's episode description. I peeked at the comments, which I usually try not to do on YouTube. I did that last night. Happy to see so much nice feedback from Time Suckers. Uh, appreciate the support. And to those of you who ripped a troll in there, uh, you did it so, so entertainingly. Bravo. It was beautiful. Now, now for Vietnam. Now for Vietnam. And oh, link to that in the episode description as well, the TED, the TEDx talk. Now it's time to head to the jungles of Vietnam for this week's Time Suck on a war that wasn't technically a war. Uh, how and why did the Vietnam War happen? Who were the major players? How did it end? What is Vietnam like now? I have a lot of questions. And in this week's Vietnam Time Suck, we're going to get to the bottom of a lot of answers. If you want a real thorough look into the Vietnam War, though, uh, watch over 15 hours of the Ken Burns Vietnam docuseries. Since I'm not willing to devote two months of time suck to Vietnam specifically, can't go into that much depth and detail here. But I think we did a pretty good job today of giving you a good feel for what this long, drawn-out military conflict was all about. Okay, right off the bat, let's, let's dig into some semantics. Was Vietnam a war or a military conflict? Vietnam actually was not officially a war because it wasn't declared by the U.S. Congress. So it wasn't technically a war in the way that our Constitution defines it. But it's not like it was fought any differently than a war. The difference really is just semantics, just a legal technicality. If you served in Vietnam, you certainly saw fucking warfare. The Vietnam War was a long series of battles and a long, long history of foreign soldiers fighting in Vietnam. Vietnam was no stranger to foreign nations moving in and pushing their weight around when the U.S. came a knocking. And the people of Vietnam had gotten really good at fighting foreigners by the time the 1960s rolled around. Vietnam became one of the Cold War's bloodiest battlefields. Can't, can't get away from the Cold War recently. It's almost as if the Cold War defined a lot of the latter half of 20th century American culture. We've looked into the Cold War, yeah, a ton recently. The Cold War was the impetus for the space race. It ended with the moon landing we discussed back in suck uh, 136. Talked a fair amount about the Cold War in last week's KGB suck. Vietnam is where a lot of the warmest parts of that chilly war took place. The long-standing battle of East versus West, collectivism versus individualism. 
and socialism and communism versus capitalism and liberalism. The history of Vietnam as a nation is fascinating. Uh, Before America came across the Pacific, the Vietnamese people had fought for centuries against French colonizers, the Chinese, even the Mongol hordes. Vietnam has a long and super interesting history. Uh, Let's go over it a bit before we dig into the war. And uh, before we, we, we even do that, go and dig into the history, let's talk about some just kind of Vietnam facts. Vietnam is currently the 15th most populated country in the world. It's actually called the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, even though to me it reads more communist than socialist. More on that later. Uh, Population-wise, it's sandwiched between the Democratic Republic of Congo and Egypt. Did you know that Egypt has over 100 million residents? I didn't. I had no idea that that many meat sacks could live in the desert, uh, in that part of the desert. Vietnam is a Southeastern Asian nation located on the South China Sea, has over 95 million residents today. People have lived in the Vietnam region and specifically the Red River Delta area of Vietnam since prehistoric times. Hanoi, which resides in the Delta, has been densely populated by various tribes for thousands of years. Today, Hanoi is the nation's capital, a city of roughly 7.8 million, while over 1,000 miles away, Vietnam's most populous city is Ho Chi Minh uh, City with over 8.4 million people. Ho Chi Minh City used to be called Saigon, was changed during the Vietnam War era. Ho Chi Minh City uh, also sits on a historically highly populated river delta known as the Mekong Delta. The climate of Vietnam varies little from each region, uh, you know, from region to region, but it's generally hot as fuck everywhere there. Temperatures range between 69.8 degrees Fahrenheit and 95 degrees Fahrenheit in the Mekong Delta area, while temperatures in the north near Hanoi are a tiny bit cooler, uh, 59 degrees Fahrenheit and uh, lows, you know, uh, average low and average high of 91 degrees Fahrenheit. So it doesn't vary a ton throughout the year. Uh, it doesn't vary a ton throughout the country. And also, yeah, it doesn't vary a, a ton throughout the seasons. Like in Hanoi, for example, less than five degrees Fahrenheit separate the hottest days of the year from the coldest days of the year. So if you like it hot and sticky pretty much all year round, Vietnam has the perfect climate for you. Vietnam is also susceptible to tropical storms and typhoons, being that it's the 38th rainiest nation in the world. With a lot of flooding. The dry season runs from December to mid-April with only a couple days of rain each month, and then it rains about half the time or more the rest of the year. And with all that water and warm weather comes a lot of biodiversity. If you don't like bugs, probably don't want to live in Vietnam. Approximately 16% of the world's species just overall make their home in this region. Over 7,500 species of bugs live there, including the world's only spider-wasp combo, the evil-looking batik mantis hornet. This thing is beyond nasty. It's gross. Males can grow up to six inches in length and basically be the size of a grown man's hand in diameter, like the palm, like a like the palm of the hand. Picture like a giant black widow with a with a black yellow jacket head and praying mantis type wings to get a feel for this creepy crawly son of a bitch. They're actually not poisonous, thank God, but they do have one of the strongest bites of any insect on Earth and are known to have taken a finger or two off of a baby with their powerful mandibles. Jesus, imagine that bad boy landing on you and then it just starts chomping on your face or maybe it's crawling on your back where you can't, you can't reach it to get it off. And then, and then imagine just crawling all over your naked body at night. Think about waking up to that. I would freak out. It would be so hard to go to sleep knowing that those things are just crawling all over your neck and your face and mouth and your chest. It's disgusting. Uh, Vietnam is also full of ombre asino ants and Roanoke recluse spiders and a lot of other insects that I've made up just to creep people out who hate bugs. 
Uh, how upset are some of you right now? How many, how many wasp spiders did you just feel landing and then crawling all over you, getting ready to take out hunks of flesh with their powerful jaws? No, there are no batik mantis hornets, but there are over 7,500 species of bugs, which really is a, just about the same amount of creepiness. There is also uh, 260 different species of reptiles, over 800 types of birds, 310 species of mammals. There were most certainly a few more species before the U.S. started their Operation Rolling Thunder bombing raids that just ravaged the Vietnam foliage. Vietnam is also a place where you can catch fun diseases. We don't worry about uh, too much in America anymore, like malaria. Over 40,000 cases of malaria were reported by U.S. soldiers between 1965 and 1970. 78 soldiers died from malaria in that time span. Cholera was also epidemic in Vietnam, but the highly uh, immunized or immunized and well-fed troops didn't catch a single case of that. So thankfully, McGill's pop did not blow off a single American butthole. Besides diseases and insects, there was also fun animals like leopards, rhinos, Indian elephants, bears, and tigers in Vietnam. It's like a, it's like a Disney jungle book ride, but without a corny ass tour guide cracking dad jokes and a lot of animals floating around that can and will kill you. There are saltwater crocodiles swimming around, plus killer whale-looking orcas, probably a lot of creepy sea life I don't even want to think about. There's also a number of monkey species swinging around doing monkey bullshit. Imagine seeing all that at 19 years old after growing up in Butte, Montana, or Newark, New Jersey, or Santa Fe, New Mexico. It must have felt like getting dropped off just on an entirely different planet. Okay, so now you have a, a little bit of a feel for Vietnam, you know, for what it looks like, what's, what's over there, tropical mountains, fertile plains. Lots of creepy crawlies. Let's meet the people. Find out how Vietnam was settled and all that good stuff. And then power right on up to the Vietnam War and beyond in today's Time Suck timeline that we will launch into right after a word from today's first sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you by Hims. Sexual performance issues are more common than you would think. Just ask Joe Paisley or Chikatilo. But they're nothing you can't treat. And ForHims.com is here to help. ForHims.com is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. My wife, Lindsay, who is a serious lotion whore, has recently been stealing my goodnight wrinkle cream. Cream. Cream? I don't have goodnight wrinkle cream, but I do have goodnight wrinkle cream that I got from Hims. It smells so good and it feels so luxurious. I highly recommend it. Real nice way to put yourself to bed with a little splendor and lavishness. The $24 bottle I ordered has lasted me months as well, even with Lindsay stealing a lot of it without my express and or written permission, which I do need to talk to HR about. And For Hims is about a lot more than lotion. Let's talk about erectile dysfunction. Thanks to science, ED can be optional. Hims connects you with real doctors, medical grade solutions to treat ED. No waiting room, no awkward in-person doctor boner visits. Just answer a few quick questions and chat with the doctor for a confidential review. Then products are shipped directly to your door. These are well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions to help you combat ED. Being your best means performing at your best. So try Hims for a month today for just $5 while supplies last. See website for full details and safety information. This would cost hundreds of dollars if you went to a doctor or pharmacy. Go to forhimscom slash timesuckED. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S.com slash timesuckED. forhimscom Slash Time Suck ED. Link in the episode description. Time Suck Timeline right now. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. (laughs) 
Uh, real quick note about this timeline. I didn't do any research and I've probably made, all, made it all up. Okay, let's get into it. Uh, no, that would be, that'd be terrible. Uh, no, the real note is that this is a general overview, not a look into every single tribe and small kingdom that existed in the land we now, we now call Vietnam. And, uh, and, and it's not a look into every single battle fought in the Vietnam War. That would take about a thousand hours instead of two. But we get a lot of the good highlights. And, uh, and sorry if you hear noise in the background. We've had the worst luck with recording this week. Uh, fucking pressure washers powering outside the window. And then <laughs> out of all the times they could mow the one little strip of lawn just next to the window, they chose right now when we have to record before I leave town. It's been Murphy's Law. Uh, so hopefully you don't hear that uh, too much. But if you're like, what is that noise in the background? That's what it is. We're not going to stop recording. We're just going to power through. If only we could shut down several blocks around the suck dungeon so I could hear no noises. But that's not the real world. Okay. That's not, that's, not the, that's not the situation we have now. Maybe someday a real dungeon, just down underground, thick fucking concrete stone walls, and, uh, and a death penalty for anybody who comes by and makes noise. You, every once in a while, you would just hear like the crack of a gun and just like a thump. And then it would, like it, you, you might hear like a tiny bit of noise, then an immediate quick crack of the gun, then body thump, then me going, good job, Joe, nice shot. And then just carry back on with the, with the show. <laughs> okay, let's get this timeline. It's getting all over the place. 2879 BCE, the Hong Bang Dynasty begins when the first Hung King unites several tribes under one rule in the land of Vietnam. And yes, I said Hong Bang and Hung King, which makes me so happy because I'm a child inside. And when I read that the first time, I immediately thought, uh, too bad that the first name of that dynasty wasn't uh, Finger. The Finger Bang Dynasty would be so much fun to talk about. Uh, the Hong, not finger bang dynasty and their famous Hung kings would rule the Vietnam region for over 2,500 years. They'll be the first of many dynasties to come. Also so great that those, those, that's all put together. That you have the bang, the bang kings are, are called Hung. I mean, if you're going to get banged, you probably want some well-hung banging. Okay, around 2,500 BCE, the region's civilization gets a boost when rice cultivation is introduced. Today, Vietnam is still among the, the world's top three or four rice producers. The fertile deltas of the Red River and Mekong Rivers are two of the best places to grow rice on earth, which makes me so hungry because I love me some rice. So versatile, so comforting. Just sweet, sweet, fluffy little carb pods. You can just, you can just really kind of, you know, really milk it out. You can just eat them for so long because they're so tiny. In 1913 BCE, what's known as the Middle Hong Bang period begins and so much Hong Banging ensues. The Hongs are banging, the Hongs are banging, everybody's banging. Another huge boost for the Vietnamese civilization occurs around 3,000 years ago when bronze casting was introduced around 1200 BCE. Irrigation techniques were also brought to the region during the same era and civilization continued to expand. And uh, I just got to get this out of my head. Every time I say Vietnamese, I want to say Vietnamese because that's how my daughter Monroe would say that word for so many years when she was younger because she loved pho soup. And, uh, and she'd be like, I'll have some, I'll, I want some Vietnamese. Adorable. Okay. The late Hongbang period begins in 1054 BCE. The Chinese migrate to Vietnam started in 700 BCE, roughly two centuries before Confucianism begins to develop amongst the Chinese. Confucius lived from 551 to 479 BCE. Confucius and the philosophy he taught needs a whole suck to explain properly. The very short definition is the ethical teachings formulated by Confucius and introduced into the Chinese religion, emphasizing devotion to parents, family, and friends, cultivation of the mind, self-control, and social just, excuse me, and just social activity. 
Uh, in 500 BCE, the, the very first Vietnamese Lunar New Year known as Tet is combined or celebrated, excuse me, in Vietnam. Around 2,500 years later, the celebration of this exact same holiday will mark a major turning point in the Vietnam War during the whole Tet Offensive. Uh, in 300 BCE, the Buddhist religion made its way to the Vietnamese people. Buddhism also needs its own suck to properly understand. But here's another very short definition. Buddhism is a religion which teaches that the way to end suffering is by overcoming your desires. Be gone, Lucifina. Get out here. Lucifina, not a big fan of this religion. She loves desire. I'm not, I'm not sure uh, I want to live a life where I've overcome my desires. Uh, I like desires. I, I am also aware that Buddhism is a lot more complex than I'm making it seem right there. The Hongbang dynasty of the Hong Kings ends and is replaced by the Thuk dynasty in 157 BCE. That's not, com- that's not the complete proper pronunciation uh, for Thuk dynasty um, also. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm not going to try to do it with that word specifically because I sound like a racist asshole when I try to pronounce some of these words as the Vietnamese do in their videos. That language does not suit my super white voice at all. Sorry, I know this could come across as a little hypocritical, you know, because I did, you know, parody uh, the Scandinavian voice. Hang down, hang down. But unwritten cultural rules give me a lot more leeway to mock the voices of those I'm closely uh, related to, as opposed to being a white dude doing a bad Asian parody voice, something that has a has a pretty racist history of happening. Uh, felt compelled to word vomit that explanation out. I know many of you wouldn't care if I did do an Asian parody voice, but you know, internet trolls would rally hard against me. A lot of mis- misguided social justice would come back hard against me, and I don't feel like uh, throwing those folks some ammo today. Confucianism spreads to Vietnam in 118 BCE. In 111 BCE, the trend of foreign invasion begins with the Chinese Han Dynasty invading and conquering Vietnam. In 40 uh, 40 CE, uh, a Vietnamese rebellion overthrows the Chinese. It's called the Trung Sisters Rebellion. Uh, It's where two Trung sisters actually take over Vietnam and are put in charge. It's pretty cool. Uh, Women enjoyed far more autonomy in Vietnamese culture than they did in Chinese culture, and these women weren't putting up with a little bit of foreign impression. Uh, The Trung sisters were the daughters of a military prefect and rebelled after one of their husbands was executed by Han soldiers. The Trung sisters rallied other Vietnamese villagers to rally behind them, took over a local Han garrison, and then began taking over cities and towns. Hail Lucifina! Uh, Because it was run by women, the Chinese didn't initially take this rebellion very seriously, but then the rebellion raged on for roughly four years and got a lot of them killed, and then they said whatever uh, is the Chinese equivalent of like, ah, fuck. Uh, The Han eventually defeated the rebellion in 43 CE. Some say the sisters escaped, but most say the Chinese cut their heads off and sent their heads back to the Chinese palace in Beijing. I hope they escaped. I'll, I'll continue to hope that. I believe they probably got their heads lopped off. Uh, the Chinese were then going to rule Vietnam for 500 years until 544 CE. In 544 CE, the Chinese lose control of the region to another Vietnamese rebellion, and the early Li dynasty is founded, uh, or, or, or yeah, uh, by Li Nam Day or Nam Day. Uh, Li Nam Day becomes the first emperor of Vietnam, but his kingdom doesn't last long. Once again, the Chinese take control over Vietnam in 602 CE. This time, their rule lasts for over 300 years. And then in 938 CE, Go Guin leads the Vietnamese forces against the Chinese in the Battle of Bac Dang. Uh, Guin is victorious and Vietnam is taken back once again from China. Go Guin becomes the king of Vietnam in 939 CE. The Go dynasty ends with the Din dynasty beginning in 968 CE. 
Uh, again, the Chinese invade Vietnam in 981 CE, this time as the Song Dynasty, only to be defeated this time by Vietnamese forces. And then a couple hundred years later in 1258 CE, the Mongols invade Vietnam, but are driven back and defeated. Nice. Not easy. The Mongols, man. Not an easy group to uh, defeat. The Mongols would actually make three total attempts to invade Vietnam, uh, only to be defeated, uh, only to be defeated each and every time. In one case, the Vietnamese drove away a massive Mongolian naval force. And then the Vietnamese are left alone for a few more centuries. But then those damn pesky Chinese come back. In 1407, the Chinese once again conquer Vietnam and the country is ruled by the Hmong dynasty until 1428. A lot of foreign rulers, most of them from China, again and again and again. The Vietnamese Lei dynasty is founded in Vietnam in 1428 when Lei Loi leads his forces to overthrow the Chinese. Afterwards, Vietnam again declares its independence. The first European Christian missionaries come through Vietnam as early as the 16th century. They begin to trade with the Vietnamese, uh, help modernize their weapons. And then a new Vietnamese dynasty is formed in 1802 uh, called the Win Dynasty. It is the winds that give Vietnam, Vietnam its current name. Uh, Win is still the most popular name in Vietnam. And I know I'm not saying Win completely perfectly. It's spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. But uh, to me and other English speakers, a lot of them, it sounds real close to just Win, which is, you know, pretty, pretty solid name. Better than, better than Luz. Uh, the Win dynasty would be the last of the Vietnamese dynasties. Uh, their tradition, uh, the tradition of ruling families ended when Europeans began their mass colonization of the world. Wouldn't be long before the French would be up in Vietnam, Vietnam's business. And then they'd stay there right up until the Vietnam War. Before the French invaded Indochina and created their colonies, Vietnam, the Khmer Empire and Cambodia, the Laotian Kingdom, those were all separate countries. As we've learned, China was a major influence in the region, and they had ruled over the Vietnamese people several times. Each time, even if it took multiple generations, the Vietnamese would eventually fight to win their independence back. It's kind of been their thing. Over and over and over, this has happened. The Vietnamese were ruled by a series of Vietnamese emperors and kings for more than the, for them more than the 300 years leading up to the French rule. And life was great for the Vietnamese people during this time. The emperors of the various dynasties didn't actually wield much power over locals. They kept the tax rate low, generally left the people alone. One old Vietnamese saying says that the edicts of the emperor stop at the edge of the village. Hail Nimrod. Sound like libertarians. Why can't some libertarians rule over America right now? I would love that. Conservatives and liberals. How about you uh, sit things out for a while? Let's, let's shake some shit up. Try something new. Let me do whatever drugs I want as long as I pay my taxes and don't do them in front of my kids, all right? Other than that, get the fuck off my property. Okay. The people chosen to rule a collection of hundreds of villages and hamlets were chosen based on their education, perceived wisdom, the status of their family. Once elected, no one really gave a shit about them again. Sweet. Good way to rule. Before the French came, the Vietnamese people had relatively peaceful and pleasant lives. Despite the aggression of China, the Chinese did teach the Vietnamese the difficult art of planting and harvesting rice. Their resources were plentiful. Rice and fish were the common diets of the people. Still are. Still among the healthiest people in the world, if not currently amongst the happiness, or the happiest. More on that later. The richest amongst the Vietnamese owned water buffaloes to help with the farming duties. The Vietnamese, for the most part, before the French really got over there and stirred shit up, were a peaceful rural agricultural people. Women were historically treated relatively well in Vietnam when the Vietnamese governed themselves and women had a surprising amount of authority for their times or for that time. About 80% of Vietnamese people were literate and the quality of education in the villages was high. The Vietnamese learned to read and write in their own language through a form of calligraphy taught to them by the Chinese. 
The average Vietnamese citizen before the French colonization was wearing homemade clothes, traded for goods only within the village. He or she was most likely Buddhist and would practice these beliefs, consort with the Buddhist priests, consort with the Buddhist priests and partake in customary rituals. And then again, France came and fucked everything up for the Vietnamese. And the French occupation of Vietnam would lead directly to the Vietnam War. In 1858, France invades and takes control of Vietnam. By the end of the 19th century, they would also take control of Cambodia in 1863 and Laos in 1893. That big block of Asian land would become known collectively as French Indochina. The French takeover had been hundreds of years in the making. In the 16th century, European missionaries brought in modern weapons and Western goods. The missionaries were also welcomed by the locals for their technical skills. By the late 1660s, the French East India Company, an organization created to both uh, expand trade and Catholicism, had a foothold in Indochina. Over the three centuries of French occupation, a pattern of control emerged. Every once in a while, when a French priest, trade, trader, or soldier was attacked or killed by the locals, the French would retaliate by taking more control and extending their power. Eventually, the French seized control officially, taking over much of the people's land, making a class system with the privileged French at the top. They took over and carved up a part of Asia, just like they'd done in Africa, as we learned back in Suck 72, the colonial destruction of Africa. The French also played rival factions of the Vietnamese against each other. They'd intervene in land disputes, and the winning faction would reward the French with more land and the right to spread French trade, influence, and religion. And then in 1893, like I mentioned, the French made Vietnam part of French Indochina. By the 1920s, a French bureaucracy of just 5,000 Frenchmen controlled the region of over 30, 30 million Vietnamese, Laotian, and Cambodian people. With great pride, the French brought their culture to Indochina and forced it down the local people's throats, as was their custom at the time. Oh, yeah, take our culture, put it in your mouth, yes? Uh, suck it. Suck our culture, now swallow it. Swallow our culture, you naughty little country, you. France brought their language, religion, music, poetry, literature, laws, education system, technology, and their government to Asia to spread their form of wig-wearing civilization to the supposedly inferior native people. The French would indoctrinate the locals with tales of French glory and French versions of history. While being taught the French language and the ways of Catholicism, some Vietnamese students also learned math, science, and engineering in private schools. Up to 20% of special private school classrooms contained the smartest and often richest Vietnamese boys. Some of these students, if their parents could afford it, could send their children to French colleges. And by French uh, children, I mean French boys. That's the way shit was back then. Lucifine is angry. Uh, they could send them to French colleges in Indochina or even a university in France. Basically, the elites of Vietnam were being trained in the ways of France to help the French maintain control. Because how do you control a foreign culture most effectively? You turn their culture into your culture. And France was very good at this. This wasn't France's first colonization rodeo. France had colonized massive amounts of Africa, plus South and Central America, North America, and Asia. Not to mention they'd recently tried to take over pretty much all of Europe, conquering a lot of it several times. Fucking Napoleon. Oh, man, the Spaniards, the British, and the French. Holy, I mean, holy shit, did they wreak a lot of havoc on most of the world between the 15th and 20th centuries. It is insane how much of the world's current culture can be traced back to just three primary empires. Yes, the Germans and the Russians and the Chinese also did a lot of shit during this period, as did the Dutch and Italians and the Scandinavians did a fair amount of culture spreading in this era as well. But no one carved up the people of the world quite like the British, the Spanish, and the French. And the French changed Vietnam forever. In some ways, it was objectively beneficial. The French built railroads and schools, plus 18,000 miles of roads and numerous hospitals. 
They brought medical schools and a much better legal system. They brought electricity to large cities of Vietnam, even built hotels that still stand and are in use today. Saigon began to resemble Paris, complete with modern medicine, outdoor restaurants, and French architecture. The French invested heavily in Indochina and transformed large sections of Saigon and Hanoi into modern cities. The legal system that the French introduced had replaced a system that punished women who committed adultery, for example, by having them killed by elephants. I shit you not. In much of Southeast Asian India, death by being trampled or just beat up in general by an elephant was a common form of execution. How fucking weird is that? Like an early 18th century Scottish sea captain who documented much of his Asian travels wrote the following about execution by elephant in 1727. Says, uh, for treason and murder, the elephant is the executioner. The condemned person is made fast to a stake driven into the ground for the purpose. And the elephant is brought to view him and goes twice or thrice round him. And when the elephant's keeper speaks to the monstrous, monstrous executioner, he twines his trunk round the person and stake. And pulling the stake from the ground with great violence, tosses the man and the stake into the air. And in coming down, receives him on his teeth. And making him off again, puts one of his forefeet on the carcass and squeezes it flat. <laughs> My God. Smushes him. Just tosses him up and then smushes him. What a way to go out. Uh, apparently, yeah. They would also just sometimes just be trampled uh, by elephants. Wouldn't, wouldn't be that elaborate of that ritual that he just described. What the fuck? Seems like you could figure out a much easier way to execute somebody. I'm, I'm guessing there's probably an audience for this as well. Right? It feels like a, like a weird circus. Now, what if, what if they had the circus music going during the execution? Had like some... Weird carnival circus barker. Ladies and germs, watch as Dumbo the Destroyer walks across these naughty women here today. Open your legs to the wrong man and you open yourself up to the wrath of Dumbo. Just smush, smush, smush. The justice system that was replaced in Vietnam also would be head robbers. Maybe that's why they brought in elephants for certain other executions. You know, when, when you set the punishment bar that high for lesser crimes, you know, you got to do something more dramatic for crimes you take more seriously. Like if you're cutting somebody's head off for some theft, what are you going to do for murder? Have, have someone take a cheese grater to their genitals until they bleed to death? Uh, so the French did improve the legal rights of the Vietnamese, which was cool. The French also ran the Vietnamese justice system entirely, which was not cool. It was French lawyers arguing French law to French judges on behalf of the Vietnamese people. Pretty fucked up. Definite class system at work here. I think it goes without saying that despite some of the upgrades, not a lot of the Vietnamese people were super stoked on the new French system. Uh, The French were thorough in their assimilation programs. They also changed the school systems of Indochina, even replaced the difficult-to-learn Chinese characters of the Vietnamese language to the easier-to-learn Roman letters used in the West. In 1897, the French government sent in a prominent politician, Paul Dumer, to govern French Indochina and turn the nation around economically. By the 1890s, they invested a great deal of money, expanding control and creating infrastructure, and there was very little financially to show for it at that time for them. So they, they wanted to get Dumer in there, turn shit around. Let's make some money now. And Dumer came up with a solid plan. Let's make a bunch of dough getting people hooked on hard drugs. Uh, history seems to give Paul Dumer the credit for introducing opium to Vietnam. What a, what a lovely legacy. He started a money-making scheme where his administration encouraged the use of the drug, helped to create countless addicts, then collected taxes on the sale of this drug, just collected taxes on the addiction. According to various sources, he was able to raise a third of the revenue needed to run the Indochina government from taxes on opium alone. That's, that's some weird fucked up supply and demand stuff there. 
Uh, Dumer added a few other reforms that would ignite further desire for rebellion with, from within the Vietnamese people. Taxes were put on salt and wine. Locals who didn't or couldn't pay their taxes had their land and homes confiscated and then were often forced into day labor. That wasn't jiving with the people either. The French also started to trade Indo-Chinese rice outside of the country. So much rice would flow that Vietnam would become third in the world in its production. The Vietnamese dynasties had not allowed this trade before, and they didn't like this new policy. They wanted to keep their own rice. The French ignored the disgruntled signs of the people and confiscated even more lands to expand the rice trade. Basically, the French would take land from farmers who couldn't pay their taxes, then hire those farmers to work the land they had just taken from them. Can you imagine how angry you would be every day if someone stole your home, then rented it back to you? Like, how, how do you not spend a significant portion of your waking hours after that just constantly fantasizing about killing them? What, what are you thinking about, Dad? Killing our landlord. <laughs> you always say that because it's always fucking true. Uh, the Vietnamese people. We're getting pretty fed up with the powdered wig-wearing baguette-eating sons of bitches from the West. Rubber was another commodity that became a large French export from Vietnam. The Michelin Tire Company once owned thousands of acres there. Once again, land the people once owned uh, after its confiscation by the foreigners. The, these people were now hired to work on what turned out to be rubber plantations. So that's even less fun. If you have a farm and somebody takes it, and they, hey, we're going to make something even harder to, to harvest here. We're gonna turn, now we're going to turn it into this kind of situation for you to have to work on and, and not own it. Other peasants and jobless landless folk were put to work in mines. All of the work, whether done on a rubber plantation, a rice farm, or in one of the country's many coal mines, paid barely enough for the locals to live. France was being pretty, pretty careless with the whole win the hearts and minds of the mighty Vietnamese people they just subjugated. Over the coming decades, more and more French people would continue to migrate to this region, but it was getting harder and harder for the French government to convince them to do so because Vietnam, you know, was no paradise, fear of disease, the traveling distance, weather, crowded conditions, and what was becoming widely known as a hostile local population towards the French made convincing French mainlanders to move to Vietnam more and more difficult. And the natives had reason to be hostile. The French created over 7,000 schools, but only 15% of Vietnamese children attended. Under the French, a nation who was who was once, that was once 80% literate, now became 80% illiterate. How messed up is that? Their, their new school system isn't working out too well for the locals. The exploitation of the Vietnamese people got worse when the industrial, the industrial revolution began. Much like in Europe, a bourgeoisie and pro proletariat class system formed, wealthy French-educated Vietnamese, Laotian, and Cambodians were the second tier from the top of a new class system right below native or ethnically French people. Under the bourgeoisie were the smaller landlords who were less French-influenced or less French-influenced and more respected by the poor enemies, the term used for local Vietnamese people. Below the landlords were the petite bourgeoisie. These were shopkeepers, traders, and substance farmers. While some were lucky enough not to have landlords, many were poor. By the 1930s, nearly 70% of Vietnam's people were working low-paying jobs and were considered impoverished. Imagine a poverty rate of 70% in the U.S. Currently, less than 15% of the U.S. population lives below the poverty line, for comparison. In Vietnam, there were roughly five times the amount of impoverished people per capita. By the end of the beginning of the 20th century, colonization was becoming more and more a dirty word in Vietnam. Anti-colonialists in France argued that France was responsible for the misery, ignorance, and debt of the Indo-Chinese people. More and more people started to see imperialism as immoral. These thoughts led to the rise of a local communist party. The Vietnamese were building towards another revolution against foreign oppressors in the early 1900s. 
a new elite intellectual class within the Indo-Chinese population emerged in the 1920s and 30s. Armed with the works of Karl Marx, H.G. Wells, Charles Darwin, and other philosophers, economists, and political scientists. The new reading material, including the American Declaration of Independence and France's Declaration of the Rights of Man, came into the hands of this new class via Chinese translations. Also, pamphlets about anti-communism, fascism, and anti-Semitism were circulated around the region. Vietnamese intellectuals were entertaining all sorts of different ideas. Many thinkers from many different walks of life began to contemplate the world's issues and Vietnam's role in them. The proud warrior history of Vietnam, Vietnam became important again as the intellectuals began to remember the heroes from their past and create new heroes from their current ranks. While thoughts differed on what form of independence Vietnam should take, the Indo-Chinese peoples agreed that they could not put up with France much longer. They could also not go back to pre-colonial royal dynasty times in Vietnam either. Rebellion groups began to pop up around the nation. But initially, they weren't unified and were often isolated, and the French could easily crush them. But then one man would change all of that forever. Ho Chi motherfucking Minh. In the 1920s, it was Ho Chi Minh who created the Revolutionary Youth League. This communist group organized in small cells to avoid French officials and put out literature calling for revolutionary change. When the Great Depression struck the colonies in late 1929 and forced rice and rubber prices down, Ho Chi Minh used this crisis to bring three rival communist factions together to form the Indo-Chinese Communist Party, which called for independence from France and then would fight for it. Ho Chi Minh, a well-educated thinker, activist, and leader, forms the Communist Party of Vietnam in 1930. To understand the movement he set forward, we should take some time to understand this man. Ho Chi Minh was born as Win Sin Kun on May 19th, 1890, and Wang Tru, Vietnam slash French Indochina. In 1911, he went by the name Ba, found work as a cook on a French steamer. For three years, he was a seaman and was able to visit several African ports as well as Boston and New York, and then made it to London. He would live in London from 1915 to 1917, then moved to France where he worked as a gardener, a sweeper, a waiter, a photo retoucher, and an oven stoker. Ba remained in France until 1923, a total of six years, where he then became active in socialism under the Win I Guoc or Win the Patriot, or under the name, excuse me, he changed his name to Win I Guoc or Win the Patriot. He became a hero for demanding equal rights for the people of Indochina after World War II. The French paid little attention to Win, but the politically conscious Vietnamese did see his potential. When the Patriot became more intertwined with the communist movement after the success of Vladimir Lenin's Bolshevik Revolution, love it when last week's suck ties straight into this week's suck. Hail Nimrod, still fresh in my memory. Yeah, Win, aka the future Ho Chi Minh, uh, did travel to Moscow back in 1923. Uh, he would change his name to Ho Chi Minh many years later. He actually had a lot of names. Uh, dude was known to have used at least 15, perhaps as many as 200 different pseudonyms. At least four existing official biographies vary on names, dates, places, and other hard facts, while unofficial biographies vary even more widely. Dude was a real sneaky Pete. So if on some of these dates you're like, I, I think it was actually this year. Well, that's that's what the other book said. Uh, he had a lot of people looking for him. It was why he had to change his name. We'll, we'll see here. We'll see why here in a second. In Moscow, Ho was trained by an organization created by Lenin to train communist revolutionaries. Min would then travel to China to organize Vietnamese exiles into a new revolutionary movement. Min would travel the world as a representative of the Communist International Organization, and he actively recruited members of a Vietnamese nationalist movement to be the foundation of the Indo-Chinese Communist Party he would found in Hong Kong again in uh, 1930. The original name was the Vietnamese Communist Party, but under the advice of the Soviets, he called it the Indo-Chinese Communist Party, PCI, is what the acronym worked out to be or the initialism worked out to be. 
Uh, for that language, during this time, Min allowed other factions to organize revolutionary action, was more of an arbiter of conflicts. He seemed to know his role better than anyone, acted with patience and prudence. He had the favor of Moscow. He had the trust of both his people and the communists. The founding of PCI came at the same time as violent insurrection, uh, at the same time as a violent insurrection movement began in Vietnam in late 1930. The French retaliated with brute force and Min, despite not being present, was condemned to death as a revolutionary. Permission was obtained by the French police to extradite men from the British, but friends of the revolutionary helped him, or of the revolution, helped him escape to Moscow by way of Shanghai. Ho Chi Minh attended the 7th Congress of the International Meeting in Moscow in 1935 as a delegate for the PCI. There, the group solidified the idea of aligning with non-communists on the left to fight fascism. This was something Minh had been an advocate for for a while, and he put it into practice in 1936. Basically, the anti-colonialist communists in Indochina would extend an olive branch to colonialists that were anti-fascist. In 1938, still in exile, Ho Chi Minh travels to China to stay with uh, Mao Zedong for a few months. Mao Zedong was also a fan of communism and a friend of Moscow. And roughly a decade, decade later, on October 1st, 1949, Mao Zedong would proclaim the founding of the People's Republic of China. So that's the guy that kicked off communism in China. World War II begins in 1939. For the French-run Vietnam, this meant war with Japan. This is going to play into the uh, the whole situation that would lead to the Vietnam War. Japan invaded Vietnam in 1940 and took the colony from France. When France was defeated by Germany in 1940, Ho Chi Minh and his lieutenants, uh, Vo Win, Zap, and Pham Van Dong, worked to use the events to advance their cause. It was around this time that Minh would begin using the name Ho Chi Minh, which is he who enlightens. Another, ball, another ballsy name choice, by the way. No, no ego on this guy at all, right? I, I'm sorry, what, what did you say your name was? I am he who enlightens. Oh, that's cool. I'm, I'm Timmy. Uh, in January of 1941, this communist trio would cross the border into Vietnam with five comrades to organize the League for the Independence of Vietnam. This is the beginning of the nationalist communist movement. Seeking help with the new organization, or seeking help, this new organization went into China. For some reason, Min was arrested because they doubted his loyalty to the communist cause. He spent 18 months in prison in China, where he wrote his famous notebook from prison. That work was a collection of short poems written in Chinese that called for a revolution. Friends of Min's in China would soon obtain his release by working with a southern Chinese warlord named, and I, I really think this is how his name is said, Shang Fukyua. <laughs> Fukyua had interest in Indochina against the French, and Min's friends agreed to assist Fukyua if he freed Ho Chi Minh. Oh, man. Some, some of the names, uh, you know, they don't. In English, they come across a little differently. A little differently. That would be, be tough if you're a hostess at a, at a restaurant. I, I'm sure. Are you sure that's your name? You're, you're sure that's what I have to, to say? Okay. All right. Uh, party of four for Fukyua. Party of four for Fukyua. 1945, two events paved the way for Min and his Vietnamese revolutionaries to gain power. First, the Japanese fucked the French up good during their invasion of Indochina. The Japanese had either imprisoned or executed almost all of the French officials. Then about six months later, the United States dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and completely fucked up the Japanese. In a very short period of time, the major enemies of Ho Chi Minh, the French and the Japanese, were eliminated. Also at the same time, commandos formed by Minh's main, head, or main man, Vo Win Zap, at the order of Minh, began to move toward reclaiming the Vietnamese capital city of Hanoi. On August 19th, 1945, they entered the city. On September 2nd, they declared that Vietnam was independent in Ba Dinh Square in front of an enormous crowd. Ho Chi Minh spoke in words that would be ironically similar to that of the United States Declaration of Independence. Minh said, all men are born equal 
the creator has given us in inalienable rights. Actually, it's in, invial, invial, inviolable. I didn't, this is like, I wrote about a, a thousand pronunciations for this one. And this one, I didn't get. It's E-I-N-V-I-O-L-A-B-L-E. You, you, your guess is good as mine on that one. Invi- inviolable? I don't I fucking who, this is the only time this word has been used. Um, rights, life, liberty, and happiness. The French did not love this. They weren't very pleased by the idea of losing Indochina. They'd invested a lot of the time and money in this area and their investment was profitable. By the way, on the pronunciation, I do love that you guys correct me on pronunciations, but it is funny when some people, we get these emails that I don't share. And you're like, man, how come, how come you messed up like this word? It's a 25,000 word fucking document that I've done a week after doing another. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Oh my God. Some people, it is like, I like it. I like uh, learning, but it, it is funny to me when some people are real, uh, I guess in that sense, you know, kind of, I would say spectrum where they're just like, nope, they just, they have like a kind of robotic mind where it's like, but that, but the word you said wasn't correct. You messed up one of the 25,000 words. Why would you do that? Probably because I don't have a year to dedicate to each episode. Okay. Shortly after the end of World War II, under the leadership of Charles de Gaulle, French forces attempted to reassert control on October 6, 1945 in Saigon. They brought in a large armored division and in three months they took control of Southern Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh chose to negotiate with the French instead of fight them after they took over South Vietnam. His plan was to get the French to drive out the Chinese in the North and then negotiate for independence with the French in the South. His main goal was the unification of Vietnam and the evacuation of the French forces. Negotiations started in October of 1945, but the French never entertained his idea of independence. They did, however, get the Chinese to leave the North via a diplomatic resolution. Ho Chi Minh would sign an agreement with the French on March 6, 1946, that was supposed to recognize Vietnam as a free state with its own government, army, and finances, while still being integrated into a French union that left Paris in charge. Well, this agreement didn't satisfy either side. From June to September 1946, Ho Chi Minh went to France for a series of conferences that ultimately came to only a slightly better agreement. The French and the Vietnamese continued to try and work something out, but it wasn't looking good. Then an incident at Hapyong uh, occurred November 20 to 23rd that left almost 6,000 Vietnamese dead and any hope of peace between the French and Vietnamese was destroyed. The incident featured a French cruiser opening fire on the town of um, H-I-P, H-O, <laughs> I think it's Hapong, um, after a clash between, yeah, I think so, after a clash between French and Vietnamese soldiers. No peace is going to be reached now. In February of 1946, a very important piece is put into play that would lead to the escalation of U.S. intervention in Vietnam. The Foreign Affairs publishes an article called The Sources of Soviet Conduct by an anonymous author called Mr. X. Its actual author was a man named George Kennan, who was a State Department official. The Mr. X article outlines the containment doctrine on how to deal with the Soviets and communists in the Cold War. It basically is what it sounds like, contain the spread of communism. All of the U.S. presidents, including President Harry Truman, subscribe to this containment doctrine theory. Documents show that Truman was the first president to involve the U.S. in Vietnam. He sent money to help the French fight Ho Chi Minh in the name of containment. This containment doctrine would become one of the key justifications for U.S. military intervention in Vietnam. On December 19, 1946, the first Indochina War begins. Ho Chi Minh and his forces take refuge in northern Vietnam, and despite efforts to communicate with the French in Paris, he is unable to accept their terms and prepares for war. The French attempt to weaken Ho Chi Minh's government by offering to return the former Vietnamese emperor, Bao Dai, 13th emperor of the Win Dynasty, to power. This policy doesn't work. Ho Chi Minh has no interest in returning to some pro-French puppet monarch 
and his Viet Minh army is able to effectively harass French forces via guerrilla tactics and acts of terrorism. By the close of 1953, the communist anti-French Viet Minh forces control most of the Vietnamese countryside. The war continues in the big cities, but the French were decisively defeated at Dien Bien Phu on May 7th, 1954. The French had no choice but to listen to men now. The Geneva Conference was held in Switzerland from May to July of 1954 and divided Vietnam into two countries, the communist northern Vietnam and southern Vietnam. Representatives of eight nations met in Geneva to find an answer to the disagreements and to make peace. Vietnam was represented by two factions, the Ho Chi Minh Nationalists and the French-backed Bao Dai government. The Geneva Accords, as they would come to be known, would conclude that Vietnam would be divided into 17th parallel until the elections of 1956 would unite the Vietnamese government. And this, this really is going to lead to the U.S. involvement in this area. If a majority votes in favor of the French-backed Bao Dai government, then, the government, then that government rules all of Vietnam. If the majority were to vote for the Ho Chi Minh nationalists, then the whole nation would be communist. This is how it's supposed to work. The elections that promised unification were canceled by Go Din Diem, a South Vietnamese politician, uh, actually Go Din yeah, Diem, a South Vietnamese politician, former Vietnamese emperor uh, Bao Dai agreed to give most of his political power to when it was clear that the South Vietnamese people didn't want Bao to be in charge. Uh, Go Din Diem, or Go Din Diem, Jesus, was concerned about losing the big election to Ho Chi Minh and so was the United States. Many saw Go Din Diem as a puppet of the U.S., just like others saw Ho Chi Minh as a puppet of Moscow. So it's a good old Cold War battle, U.S. versus Soviet Union. Uh, got a, kind of a puppet candidate in a, in a way on both sides. Ho Chi Minh and his posse were now stuck in North Vietnam with no peaceful re- resolution to consolidate all of Vietnam in sight. The North was the poorest part of the country due to being cut off from all the agriculture of the South this forced Ho Chi Minh and his Viet Minh army to reach out for assistance from their comrades and communist ideals, the Russians, you know, the Soviets, and the Chinese. They need help in this big battle. Minh built solid relationships with the two giants of communism, China and Russia. You know, again, China became a communist nation in 1949 and would receive equal support from both of them when war broke out. Backing up for a second to 1954, U.S. President Eisenhower uh, created the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, CEDO, in September of 1954 as a way of trying to block the spread of communism in the region. This put Vietnam under CEDO protection and would become the main justifier for U.S. military intervention in the future. In February of 1955, President Eisenhower sent in the first batch of U.S. military advisors to help build up Vietnamese anti-communist leader uh, Go Dinh Diem's new army in the nation. Some U.S. troops are sent over as well, but again, they're all called advisors at this point. 1955 is when the American military officially gets involved in Vietnam. June 8th, 1956 is the date that the first soldier, U.S. Air Force Technical Sergeant Richard Bernard Fitzgibbon Jr. loses his life in Vietnam. Uh, he was actually murdered by a fellow American airman after a drunken argument between the two at a, at a club. He got shot by this other guy. Not exactly warfare. But the American loss of military life in Vietnam does technically begin uh, all the way back in 1956 here. When Diem officially announces the formation of the Republic of Vietnam, also known as South Vietnam, Eisenhower and the U.S. forces immediately accept them as a new nation and offer military aid and economic assistance. Puppet government, puppet government. The U.S. desperately wants to stop the spread of communism in Asia. First Russia, then China, now Vietnam. Uh Uh-uh, no, sir. Got to make sure anyone who isn't a communist gets put in charge. North Korea also became a communist nation in 1948. The big red rash is spread in Asia and Washington, D.C. is real fucking nervous. 
desperately wants to rub some capitalist cortisone on it. In July of 1959, during a meeting of the Central Committee of Ho Chi Minh's Workers' Party, they decide the only way to unify the North and the South of Vietnam is to establish communism in the North, truly establish it. This policy was accepted. Ho Chi Minh would then step down as the party's secretary general, a position his follower, Le Duan, would take up. Minh would remain, remain chief of state, but from then on, his influence would be behind the scenes. His old followers, Pham Van Dong, Tring Chin, Vo Win, Zap, and Le Duan would help him maintain his influence. Uncle Ho, as he was called, stood for unification of Vietnam, and the people loved him for it. Ho Chi Minh declares war on their French occupiers in an effort to re- reunite Vietnam in 1959. As they never could come to any kind of agreement, now, now war is on. Now the Vietnam War truly begins. Between 1956 and 1959, four U.S. soldiers died in combat in Vietnam, but the U.S. still didn't have any significant troop presence there. Uh, this, will, this will change in the coming years. The United States continued to support France and South Vietnam's uh, this is Go Dien Diem-led government, this time with military equipment and advisors. Tensions from a world hell-bent on a Cold War came to a head in Vietnam in 1959. The people of Vietnam, once again fighting foreigners over their own country, found themselves in the center of the debate over economic systems, enlightenment principles, and government structures. In 1960, the U.S. increases the number of military advisors supporting Diem's government to 900 men. This was in response to the Northern Force's increasing uprising, increasing uprisings in the South. U.S. advisors began taking a lead role in the Vietnam War in 1961. In the newly elected President John F. Kennedy's first speech, he expressed his desire to contain communism and was an ardent believer in the domino theory. The domino theory was a reference to the spread of communism. The theory stated that if one nation fell to communism, all the nations would fall too, or all the other nations. I know we've referenced this belief in a sucker too before. It's a theory that makes sense to me, even though it's been largely discredited. But I can see how you could view the communist ideology as a disease, especially in 1961, after the recent expansion of communism in various Eastern Bloc nations over the previous few decades. It is spreading into Asia. Many felt based on what was happening around the world that if you didn't eradicate communism or at the very least quarantine it, or quarantine it, that it would continue to spread. And it seemed to spread a lot more pain and suffering than capitalism which for sure has plenty of problems, but it doesn't go directly against most humans' basic nature like communism does. Again, in my opinion, uh, not just in my opinion, is the historical fact that Vietnam was seen as a critical nation in Asia as far as this domino theory went. In Kennedy's speech, he stated that he would continue the policies of President Eisenhower and continue to support the anti-communist government of South Vietnam. He would later go on to pledge more aid and more military advisors to South Vietnam. The number of advisors would, would increase to 3,200. In that year, Kennedy would also provide $65 million in military equipment and another $136 million to aid Diem's South Vietnamese pro-American government. During Kennedy's presidency, for two years, the U.S. supported Diem and his strategic Hamlet program. This approach meant to isolate rural Vietnamese from the influence of Uncle Ho by keeping rural folks from hearing the unification message of the North Vietnamese in their cities a tactic that seemed doomed to fail, even in the pre-internet and cell phone age when it was harder to pass info around. Yet the plan would backfire. The Viet Cong's membership would actually increase by 300% to 17,000 strong in the two years of the strategic hamlet. I guess people didn't like having information withheld from them and essentially being told how to think. Who would have guessed? Now, the Viet Cong were you know, those in the South who were, who were teaming up, uh, who were sympathetic to Uncle Ho in the North and were in favor of unifying the country under communist rule. 
The failure of this program caused President Kennedy to increase the U.S. advisors to 16,000 men by 1963. It became obvious to U.S. leaders by 1963 that Diem would not be able to unite his country. Now, let's back up real quick, a tiny bit, to 1962. Let's talk about the draft. The Selective Service, also known as the draft, is implemented by the U.S. government in 1962. Over 82,000 young men would be drafted that year with the peak in 1966 of 380,000 inductions into the military. Far cry from 1943's 3.3 million inductions for World War II. Uh, we'll talk about we'll talk more about the draft here soon. Another major event in 1962 was the beginning of Operation Ranch Hand by the U.S. military. The plan was to destroy the food crops and hiding places of the Viet Cong in South Vietnam and along the Ho Chi Minh Trail by destroying the forests. The Ho Chi Minh Trail being, uh, you know, supply routes between the north and the south. I get the military strategy here, but pretty evil plan. Just, you know, hey guys, I was thinking it'd be easier to find the enemy if we just destroyed the entire nation's forests. What if we just burned everything? Just crops, trees, farmers, just scorch everything. And hey, maybe they would be more likely to surrender if they were super thirsty because we'd also poisoned all their wells, rivers, and water supplies. Do you want to do that? Hey, I was also thinking, what if we kidnapped and tortured their kids so then they would surrender just to save them? You know, or, or what if we made more of the bombs we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and just motherfucked their entire nation into utter, unlivable oblivion? Don't have to worry about the domino effect if we nuke one of the fucking dominoes into radioactive dust. A weird thing to think about, but an important thing to think about now, how far is too far when it comes to war? You know, what, what, is, what is going too far look like? Starting on August 10th, 1961, with a test run ending in 1971, Operation Ranch Hand was 10 years of dropping an immense amount of chemicals on the forests of Vietnam. Just a full decade of just basically saying, yeah, fuck trees. According to reports, 20% of Vietnam's forests were sprayed at least once by the estimated 20 million gallons of U.S. defoliants and herbicides. Over 20,000 sorties were flown over the 10 years. A sortie was several planes flying together, each dropping around 1,000 gallons of some of that defoliating agent. I'm sure any peasants who happened to get sprayed were totally okay, though. Uh, no, they weren't. The best known of the chemicals dropped in the Vietnam War is Agent Orange. Cambodia and Laos were also drenched in that shit, but to a lesser extent. Uh, there were actually several herbicidal defoliants like Agent Pink, Agent Blue, Agent Purple, Agent White, Agent Green, as well as several forms of Agent Orange, including what was called Super Orange. <laughs> Sounds... Sounds like a bunch of tasty-ass sodas or something. Some kind of like 1970s sodas, you know? Hey, kids, no summer break is complete without a cool, refreshing soda to crack open at baseball practice or chug after a long day on the slip and slide. And the best, tastiest, and deadliest sodas this summer are Agent Sodas. Agent Blue, White, Orange, and Green are more packed, not just with flavor, but also with powerful carcinogens and chemicals that'll wash down your mac and cheese with some darkening of the skin, liver problems, a severe acne like skin disease, type 2 diabetes, immune system dysfunction, nerve disorders, muscular dysfunction, hormone disruption, heart disease, in addition to a bazillion different kinds of cancer. And now you can try new Super Orange. Tastes like a dream sickle, feels like a million tiny poisonous knives cutting up and killing your insides. Why? Because that's exactly what it does. <laughs> Agent Soda. Get out there, tiger, and drink some death. That's, that's the vibe I get from all this stuff. Uh, since the Vietnam War, the amount of damage caused to the ecosystem and, and to generations of people living there is still being calculated. Millions of Vietnamese people were sprayed by Agent Orange. 
and other chemicals, which led to at least 3 million Vietnamese people suffering health problems. 1 million birth defects caused directly by exposure to Agent Orange. A million. And 24% of the area of Vietnam being defoliated. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot less woods, a lot less forest, a lot less jungle. Operation Ranch Hand had affected the bloodlines of the people of Vietnam. The wildlife was greatly reduced. The food chain was disrupted. Uh, many U.S. troops were also sprayed or exposed to chemical agents. Uh, whoops. Increasing numbers of former troops and their families are still reporting, to this day, negative health effects from rashes to birth defects and cancer. In 1988, an Air Force researcher who was part of Operation Ranch Hand said, when we initiated the herbicide program in the 1960s, we were aware of the potential for damage due to dioxin contamination in the herbicide. However, because the material was to be used on the enemy, none of us were overly concerned. We never considered a scenario in which our own personnel would become contaminated with a herbicide. What, how interesting that how much like, like warfare morality has changed, at least with most nations. Now there is so much public backlash regarding collateral damage, and rightly so in a lot, if not most cases. I only hesitate to say all cases because I'm sure there are situations when uh, you know collateral damage will occur based on some type of military action, but the overall loss of life will be greatly reduced. So you can use some kind of modern-day Hiroshima-type greater good rationalization. But that being said, if we sprayed some poison on a foreign land today and a lot of foreign civilians ended up getting poisoned, I'm guessing some random military researcher would draw more than a little public backlash heat down on themselves if they publicly st stated something like we just heard. You know, if they publicly stated something along the lines of, yeah, uh, we didn't really think about uh, what it might do to foreign citizens. To be honest, uh, since we weren't using it on our own land, uh, we— uh, we didn't really, really give a shit, to be, to be completely clear. Uh, both Vietnamese citizens and U.S. veterans have sued large chemical companies and won for millions and millions and millions in damages from the effects of, uh, you know, getting millions of damages because of the effects of Agent Orange to their bodies over the years. November 1st, 1963, just weeks before he would be assassinated, Kennedy reluctantly approved a CIA coup to overthrow the Diem regime. Diem had shown his inability to lead when his forces fired on Buddhist demonstrators in Wei, killing eight people and instigating a horrific incident where several Buddhist monks burned themselves to death in protest. And I bet more of you have seen the image of that than you know. If you're a Rage Against the Machine fan, their first studio album, that one with killing in the name of, right? That uses, it uses a picture of one of these monks calmly sitting there in 1963 as he is engulfed in flames. That's the cover art for that album. Intense image, to say the least. Uh, the coup ended in Diem's assassination. On So, you know, it sounds like, you know, we didn't, he wasn't doing what the U.S. wanted him to be doing over there. It wasn't effective, so we, we killed him and to get him out and replaced him with a new puppet. On November 22nd, 1963, 12.30 p.m. Central Standard Time in Dealey Plaza, located in Dallas, Texas, President John F. Kennedy is killed. And if you want to know more about that assassination, we did a two-parter on it quite some time back. Suck in. Kennedy's vice president, Lyndon B. Jumbo Johnson, the big peen, another former suck subject, would assume the presidency and would become the third of six U.S. presidents that would take part in the struggles of Vietnam in some way. L.B. Jumbo J. kept the U.S. policies in Vietnam that he inherited from Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy going. He continued to offer U.S. support of the South Vietnamese fighting the Viet Cong, wasn't quite ready to commit more American troops over there. With an election coming up in 1964, he pledged not to send more American boys off to Southeast Asian jungles to fight. And then the Gulf of Tonkin incident happened. On August 2nd, 1964, 
the first event known as the Gulf of Tonkin incident and also called the USSS or the USS Maddox incident occurred. Basically, while in Vietnamese waters, the U.S. destroyer, USS Maddox, was in the process of patrolling when three Viet Cong torpedo boats began pursuing the U.S. ship. Maybe. The Maddox fired three warning shots at the North Vietnamese ships, to which they allegedly responded to by launching torpedoes and firing their machine guns. And then the Maddox fired over 200 shells in retaliation, damaging three of the North Vietnamese torpedo boats, killing four, four Vietnamese sailors, wounding six others. The U.S. had zero casualties and basically zero damage. A single bullet hole is reported to be found in the USS Maddox. So maybe the U.S. kind of misrepresented how this incident actually went down. Or the Vietnamese were just really bad shots. U.S. military leaders were itching for war, some of them. The military-industrial complex maybe manipulating the Gulf of Tonkin incident was their way to get it. Many years later, Viet Cong leaders would say that they believed the Maddox was meant to be a provocateur. It poked its cannons right into the face of North Vietnamese people and even patrolled during South Vietnam commando raids, giving the illusion to the Viet Cong that the USS Maddox was in control of those events. In retaliation for the alleged attacks, President Jumbo Johnson calls for airstrikes on two North Vietnamese patrol boat bases. In that battle, two two U.S. jets are shot down and a U.S. pilot named Everett Alvarez Jr. becomes the first U.S. pilot or soldier to be taken prisoner by the North Vietnamese. Originally, the U.S. National Security Agency claimed that there was another event that happened in the Gulf of Tonkin on August 4th, 1964. Allegedly, it was another sea battle, but the story was retracted and written off as false radar images, which officials chalked up to Tonkin ghosts. Evidence later showed there were no North Vietnamese torpedo boats present during this second incident. Ho Chi Minh's longtime associate, uh, Vo Nguyen Zap, who was the general of the Viet Cong at the time of the incident, was asked about the Gulf of Tonkin attack in 1995, so many years later, in which Zap said the attack had been imaginary. In that same interview, former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara asked Zap what happened that day, and Zap responded with absolutely nothing. In a 2003 documentary, Fog of War, Vietnam-era Defense Secretary McNamara essentially admits that the August 4th incident never happened and that the August 2nd incident didn't go down quite how the U.S. said it did. Many critics call these events, which are certainly misleading, if not purposely, a false flag operation. And a false flag operation is when a government attacks itself, blames the attack on its enemies, then justifies attacking said enemies. Hitler did this multiple times. Nero did it. And it looks like we did it with Vietnam, with the Gulf of Tonkin. Regardless of what actually happened or didn't happen, the, the incident or incidents in the Gulf of Tonkin was the excuse that LBJ needed to send in more American boys. President Johnson interrupted national television on August 4th, 1964, to address the Gulf of Tonkin incident. He described the event as an attack on the high seas by Ho Chi Minh. It was clear that he wanted Americans to believe that the U.S. was not the aggressor. Not everyone believed him. Before I move on, I found this little bit of history to be pretty fascinating. Jim Morrison, the singer of The Doors, Jim Morrison's dad, was in charge of the naval forces during the Gulf of Tonkin. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, George Stephen Morrison was aboard the USS Bonham Richard flagship carrier, was commander of the Navy forces that triggered the escalation of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Strange that Jim Morrison and his band, The Doors, would go down in history as some of the most adamant anti-war artists of that era. The Jim and George Morrison connection is part of a larger larger conspiracy theory that perhaps we can suck into in the future here called Laurel Canyon. The conspiracy is juicy, links Navy intelligence, anti-war propaganda, LSD, Charles Manson, Frank Zappa, the porn industry, the Beatles, the Grateful Dead, and so many other 60s and 70s icons and more into one little crazy drug murder town conspiracy. 
Just wanted to throw that out there. After the Gulf of Tonkin incident riled up those who were already eager for war, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, or the Southeast Asia Resolution, is passed on August 7th, 1964. A joint resolution that gave President Johnson authority to use military force to assist any CEDAW, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization member, without a formal declaration of war by Congress. The resolution passed the House 416 to 0, passed the Senate 88 to 2. Critics immediately pointed out that the act circumvented the Constitution and the responsibility of Congress to officially declare war. The Korean War had also been done in this way, and the trend has continued up into the present, which is pretty fascinating and terrifying. The executive branch of government can absolutely send our nation into war whether Congress agrees or not. You know, with that little, nice little loophole, just not called a war. Troops getting killed without congressional approval due to semantics. Reading about shit like that makes me want to cheat more on my taxes, which might sound random. But if our nation's leaders have no problem taking ethically questionable little shortcuts and loopholes to accomplish what they want, why shouldn't I do that? President Johnson, let's move up to 1964. President Johnson wins the presidential election of 1964 over Barry Goldwater by a huge margin. The electoral college vote for was 486 for Johnson to just 52 for Goldwater. Thank God. Goldwater's view of Vietnam suggested escalating the warfare to use nuclear weapons. Dude might have started World War III had he nuked Vietnam and provoked Russia to really join in the nuclear fight. The Soviet Politburo in Russia increases its support of North Vietnam in November of 1964 by sending aircraft like Soviet-built MiG fighter and fighters plus artillery, or, or artillery, ammunitions, small arms weapons, radar and air defense systems, as well as food and medical supplies. The Chinese also answered the Ho Chi Minh call and helped build critical defenses by sending in engineering troops. Let's teeter off of the timeline now for a minute and take a quick look at the major players, the individuals of the Vietnam War, or as the Vietnamese called it, the American War. Let's start with the Vietnamese. Uh, Le Duan is the first and arguably the most important figure of the entire Vietnam War and communist movement, even Stephen with Ho Chi Minh. Le Duan was the main organizer of the underground communist party after Vietnam was divided in 1954. By 1960, he was second in command of the Workers' Party of Vietnam Central Committee, making him second only to Ho Chi Minh. Le Duan would assume the responsibilities of Ho Chi Minh after Minh's death in 1969 and would lead the communist North Vietnamese to the end of the war. Ho Chi Minh, we've already talked about, uh, the integral role he played in his nation's history. The dude was so important, as soon as the North Vietnamese took the victory in the Battle of Saigon, they renamed Saigon to Ho Chi Minh City. Another important leader in the Vietnam War that we've spoken a bit about is President Ngo Dinh Dinh Diem. Uh, ultimately assassinated in October of 1963 in a U.S.-backed coup, Diem was president of the Republic of Vietnam until his untimely death. Diem, who is Catholic, alienated and even persecuted Buddhists in Vietnam despite them being the majority. His government was known to be corrupt and he ignored calls for free elections. The U.S. supported him, but the final straw was Diem's highly publicized suppression of Vietnamese Buddhist demonstrations. Diem was widely hated, as was his family. Can't piss off monks so bad that they burn themselves alive in a nation of Buddhists, and expect the continued support of the people. Uh, Lei Duc To is another important Vietnamese figure. To was a communist organizer, helped lead the Vietnamese independence organization, Viet Minh, and also the communist party known as the Vietnamese Workers' Party. Also oversaw the Viet Cong insurgency that began in the 1950s, and he carried out most of his duties of the Vietnam War undercover and in hiding while in South Vietnam. Uh, Le Duc Tho would go on to negotiate a peace deal in 1972 with U.S. diplomat and obvious lizard Illuminati New World Order overlord Henry Kissinger, which agreed to a ceasefire and the eventual withdrawal of U.S. forces from the region. 
Le Duc Tho, along with Henry Kissinger, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for the negotiation. Le Duc Tho declined it. He's like, ah, I don't fucking care about that shit. Another of the most important figures for the Communist North was General Vo Win Zap. Zap, who we've already touched on quite a bit, was Ho Chi Minh's number one general in the first Indochina War for good reason. Many military figures around the world consider him to be one of the greatest military minds of the 20th century. It was Zap that would survive, or excuse me, it was Zap that would supervise the communist Vietnamese military efforts against U.S. and anti-communist forces. Uh, the United States had a number of key non-presidential figures that helped shape the Vietnam War. One of the most controversial of the 20th century has to be Henry Kissinger, considered by many Washington insiders at the time to be the smartest guy in the room and Nixon's whiz kid. He was President Nixon's national security advisor and then his secretary of state. He advised Nixon on all things Vietnam, including the bombing of Cambodia. He even won a Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating an end of the war, as we said. For every historian or intellectual or journalist that thinks uh, of K Kissinger as an important diplomatic realist, you know, somebody who's just great at their, his job, just did what he needed to do in order, uh, you know, to protect the greater good. There's another who thinks he was a morally bankrupt, evil son of a bitch. The reasons why are so complicated, this polarizing guy, polarizing guy deserves his own suck someday. An important figure in the anti-war movement from within the U.S. government was Arkansas Senator William Fulbright. He published a book in 1966 called The Arrogance of Power that was very critical of President Johnson and his strategies of war. A heavily criticized but important figure from the U.S. military was General William Westmoreland, the commander Westmoreland, uh, I think is actually the better way to say his name, the commander of the U.S. forces in Vietnam from 1964 to 1968. It was General Westmoreland that sent large numbers of troops out on search and destroy missions to find the Viet Cong, and this tactic led to heightened casualties on both sides. One of the loudest voices for the pro-war side, or one could call it Team Anti-Communist, was Special Assistant for National Security Affairs, McGeorge Bundy. McGeorge Bundy worked under both President Kennedy and President Johnson and was consistent in his desire for escalated war in Vietnam. He quit in 1966. However, he would, he would carry the arguably super dumb first name of McGeorge all the way to his grave in 1996. McGeorge. <laughs> that name sounds like some bullshit I'd make up. It sounds like something I'd put into a Michael McDonald joke, right? Like, like McGeorge could be Michael, Michael McDonald's forgotten younger brother, McGeorge McDonald. Instead of winning Grammys, McGeorge McDonald ran a kind of successful karaoke night at a Venice Beach bar in the 80s. He looked exactly like his brother Michael, except he went gray even younger, suffered from extreme male pattern baldness. He ran McGeorge McDonald's Karaoke McMarathon. Happy hour will drink prices all night long and dollar tacos to whoever signs up for at least two songs at McGeorge McDonald's Karaoke McMarathon. Yamo McGeorge, ra ra runs karaoke night. Karaoke McKnight. Okay. The last of the key figures I'll mention here is former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. McNamara was the Defense Secretary from 1961 to 1968, was an early advocate of escalation and a proponent of the domino theory. As the war marched on, he became disillusioned and resigned after the Tet Offensive. Before we get back into the timeline, now is as good a time as any to look briefly at what weapons soldiers were using in, in the Vietnam War. The communist Vietnamese had two major forces. The People's Army uh, of Vietnam, P-A-V-N, also called the North Vietnamese Army, N-V-A, and the National Liberation Front for South Vietnam, NLF, also known as the Viet Cong, V-C. On the ground, the communist Vietnamese forces were armed with mainly weapons from China, the Soviet Union, and other communist allies. By 1969, the U.S. had identified 40 different rival or rifle 
carbine types, 22 kinds of machine guns, 17 mortar types, 20 recoilless rifles and rocket launcher types, nine kinds of anti-tank weapons, 14 anti-aircraft weapons. They also had 24 types of armored vehicles. The most popular handheld weapon of the North Vietnamese was the AK-47. One of the greatest weapons of the Vietnam War wasn't technically a weapon at all. It was the North Vietnamese tunnel system. To combat the better equipped U.S. and South Vietnam forces, the Viet Cong dug tens of thousands of miles of tunnels. Let me repeat that. Tens of thousands of miles of tunnels. Jesus. The most extensive of the tunnels lay under an area just northwest of former Saigon called Coochie Tunnels. The, the base sounds so cute. I just hang, just hanging out in the Coochie Tunnels. Sounds, sounds sexy. Hey, Lucifina. What are you, what are you doing? Just getting in some Coochie Tunnel. <laughs> sounds like some crude slang. No, the Coochie Tunnels, they were like the main base of operations for the Viet Cong. Today, the tunnels are a popular tourist attraction. I've watched videos of tour guides taking people into these tunnels or showing booby traps inside the tunnels, like a, such as like large metal spikes. You know, the tips covered in lethal poison, just savage shit. During the war, the tunnels protected the soldiers from bombing raids, and they even and they even became home to many. It was that extensive. Underground villages existed. These tunnels housed kitchens, sleeping quarters, hospitals, even theaters, even small music venues designed to keep the troops' spirits up. I, I bet McGeorge McDonald would have fucking killed to get booked in one of those tunnels. If he could just get one solid karaoke gig in one of those tunnels. Come on, Put in McGeorge McDonald's McKaraoke McKnight. The Vietnam People's Air Force flew a number of Soviet-made planes and helicopters. The most famous are the MiG model combat interceptors and the A-37B Dragonfly. The Vietnam People's Navy wasn't much of a, a factor in the conflict. They never ran more than 40 patrol ships before 1975, and they were just no match for the U.S. Navy and its vastly superior resources. Now let's talk about U.S. military firepower in Nam right after a word from today's final sponsor. Today's Time Soak is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Having the right answer is so satisfying. Whether it's solving a problem at work or exchanging trivia with friends, The Great Courses Plus is a priceless source of knowledge in just about any field. This streaming service offers thousands of lectures. Explore everything from ancient Egypt to exoplanets, from customs of the world to painting and gardening, with reliable, in-depth information from professors and experts who have won awards for their ability to teach. They have unique perspectives you never even thought about. So you can always be the one with all the answers. If you like today's suck, I highly recommend checking out lectures 18 and 19 from the course American Military History from Colonials to Counterinsurgents. The course is taught by retired four-star general and professor Army General Wesley Clark. Lecture 18 is a 29-minute dive called The United States Enters Vietnam. And lecture 19 is a 28-minute dive called Elusive Victory in Southeast Asia. So know the right answer. Start learning with The Great Courses Plus today. For a limited time, they're offering Time Suck listeners 40 days free. That's 40 days of unlimited access to their entire huge, fascinating library. But the only way to get this offer is by signing up through my special URL. So start enjoying 40 days for free when you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Link in today's episode description. Now, for those U.S. weapons. On the ground, the United States forces and their allies were armed with weapons like the M14, the M16, the M1 Garand, and the M1 Carbine. The U.S. also had an arsenal of tanks, mini tanks, flying tanks, floating tanks. They actually didn't use tanks much in Vietnam. Uh, the jungle was too thick, but they did have them. 
In the air, the United States had bombers like the giant B-52s and a number of smaller and faster planes and fighter jets. The hovering Harrier jet was introduced to the battlefield in several types of helicopters like the UH-1 Huey. Around 7,000 of the iconic Huey helicopters served in the war. While there were air battles with Soviet-built MiGs that made the U.S. military develop their top gun program, U.S. forces dominated the skies with planes like the F-4 Phantom and F-105 Thunder Chiefs. Okay, so now we know uh, a little bit about the, the weaponry. Let's jump back in this timeline. Let's get back to 1965. President Johnson didn't wait long after his presidential victory in, the November, in November of 1964 to initiate Operation Rolling Thunder. This was that fun nickname given to the more than three-year bombing campaign that started March 2nd, 1965, ran to November 1st, 1968. In total, twice as many bombs were dropped in the Vietnam War than in World War II. Seven million tons of bombs will be dropped on Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Imagine if that was in the United States. Imagine if in the United States, if seven million tons of bombs were dropped. It's insane. Missions were flown by B-52s and smaller jets and planes. Thousands of U.S. aircraft will be lost to Vietnamese anti-aircraft artillery and to surface-to-air missiles, as well as dogfights in the skies. Over 5,000 U.S. choppers were shot down alone. Many airmen were taken as prisoners of war. Actually, the late Arizona Senator John McCain, and in my opinion, one of the 20th century's greatest Americans and classiest politicians, was one of the Navy pilots shot down and taken as a POW. He was shot down carrying out an Operation Rolling Thunder mission. March 1965 would also mark the first time soldiers classified as U.S. combat troops would be sent to Vietnam when 3,500 Marines landed at China Beach to defend the American air base at Da Nang. Previously, American troops in Vietnam were classified as military advisors. So if you, there's any kind of date confusion with that, it's just like, yeah, it's you're like, wait, how did, how did soldiers die before any were sent there? They were just called a different name. They were called military advisors. During the Johnson presidency, he would constantly increase the amount of U.S. troops deployed to Vietnam. In 1968, it would peak at around half a million. During the L.B. Johnson uh, presidency, the protest movement over the draft and the Vietnam conflict increased, but Johnson continued to send troops saying he didn't want to become the first American president to lose a war. By the end of 1965, President Johnson sent over 82,000 troops to the region, while his military advisors wanted 175,000 more. In June of 1965, the General of the Army of the Republic of Vietnam Governmental Military, ARVN, Nguyen Van uh, Thieu, is made the new president of South Vietnam. And I'm sure he's taken back to a secret room and told, seriously though, you have to do exactly what we fucking tell you by U.S. advisors. Look at the last guy. Look at the picture of the last guy. See that hole in his head? Do you want a hole like that in your head? Then do exactly what we fucking tell you to do. Um, in July of, oh, sorry. No, that's right. In July of 1965, uh, President Johnson calls for 50,000 more ground troops. He increases the number of young people chosen in the draft to 35,000 a month. The voices of dissent now growing louder and louder back home, which is, I think, bound to happen in this situation. I mean, I get it. You know, they start drafting more people for a war that is, is harder to wrap people's head around. You're going to get some dissent. In the first major ground offense of the Vietnam War in August of 1965, an estimated 5,500 U.S. Marines come face-to-face with the Viet Cong, the 1st Viet Cong Regiment, after reaching shore in Da Nang. After six days of fighting, what was called Operation Starlight, the Viet Cong Regiment is diffused, but it would quickly be replenished. And I watched a lot of documentary videos about guys who fought in Vietnam, and that was one of the main just frustrations with the fighting. It's like, yeah, they would take some hill, they would take some battle, but if they didn't stay there, to contain it, if they, if they couldn't remain there, which was rare that they could do that, you know, they would go fight another battle. And then while they went and fought another battle, the Viet Cong would just completely retake the, the little area they'd just taken over previously. 
And especially with all those tunnels, you know, they would just fucking pop back up from the tunnels like, ah, ha-ha, we're back. It's like fighting a bunch of fucking magicians. It's fighting a million magicians is basically uh, what the U.S. went up against in Vietnam. Just surprise. Uh, okay. So the first uh, large, okay, the first large scale battle of the war happened in November of 1965 at the Battle of Ladrang Valley. Almost 300 Americans were killed with hundreds more injured as both sides declared victory or as both sides declared victory. The U.S. troops were withdrawn from the battlefield by helicopter, which would become more common. After the battle, the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese changed their approach, decided not to meet the U.S. forces or the ARVN head on. Instead, their tactics would be guerrilla style from now on, just some bulls on parade kind of shit. The battles continued throughout 1966. The troop numbers in Vietnam rose to nearly 400,000 young American men. More and more Australian men also coming to Vietnam. More on those Aussies much later. The first U.S. raids on the cities Hanoi and Hapyong, uh, North Vietnam, comes in the way of American aircraft, air ta- or American aircraft attacks in June of 1966. In 1967, the Vietnam War had a peak of over 500,000 U.S. servicemen stationed in the region. Another large U.S. air attack came in February of 1967 when American aircraft bombed Hapyong uh, against Haphong. I keep saying it wrong. Harbor and some North Vietnamese airfields. The anti-war movement continued to grow in 1967, and by April, massive protests in Washington, D.C., New York City, and San Francisco were held. A new constitution is put in place in South Vietnam in September of 1967, and Win, uh, Win Van Thieu wins the presidential election. Communist forces take on the U.S. and South Vietnamese forces in the Battle of Dok Tho in November of 1967. The U.S. suffers an estimated 1,800 casualties, taking what soldiers called Hill 875 in a heavy and prolonged firefight against roughly 2,000 entrenched Viet Cong. Watching a video of this battle, I came across an interesting stat. During World War II, an infantryman averaged 10 days of combat in one year. In Vietnam, an infantryman averaged 240 days of combat a year. That is a lot of fucking combat. 24 times as much, right? The battles were just never ending. These guys were fighting every single day, you know, because the battle, it was just kind of continuous. Some of the battles would have names, but then in between these battles, again, there's just people popping out of tunnels or popping out of the jungle, taking sniper shots, these guys all the fucking time, way more days than than when they weren't doing that kind of stuff. On December 5th, 1967, two battalions of Viet Cong attacked the village of Dak Sun. This has become known as the Massacre of Dak Sun. Several battles between South Vietnamese defense militias and the Viet Cong had already occurred here. Many have alleged that the Dak Sung massacre was payback for an earlier loss. Between 114 and 252 civilians were killed on this day. A local defense of 54 men fought bravely against an estimated 300 uniformed Viet Cong. Viet Cong troops, some of which had flamethrowers, burned most of their hamlet to the ground. Homes that weren't burned were blown up by grenades. After burning people alive in their homes, burning more than half of the 150 thatched homes, the Viet Cong shot 60 of the 160 South Vietnamese survivors just to make an example out of them before leaving the village. Communist forces from the People's Army of Vietnam attacked a U.S. Marine garrison at Khe Son in South Vietnam between January and April of 1968. The fighting started January 21st as North Vietnamese General Zap's forces hammered the U.S. Marine garrison at Khe Son in the northern region of South Vietnam. For 77 days, the South Vietnamese and U.S. Marines fought back the attacks. While President Johnson and General Westmoreland focused their efforts on Khe Son, the North Vietnamese had a much bigger attack planned. On January 31st of 1968, a turning point in the war would occur with the Tet Offensive. 
Tet again was the Vietnamese Lunar New Year, usually a day of nationwide celebration. We mentioned its origin earlier in the suck. While the average Vietnamese person traveled to see their family, the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese armies planned and carried out an attack that would take place in more than 100 cities and outposts simultaneously in South Vietnam. The VC and PAVD troops were able to dress casually, hide within the large crowds of the busy holiday. Viet Cong and PAVD troops hit Saigon and the city of Hue, plus they invaded the U.S. Embassy under the cover of this holiday. Despite heavy casualties and over 30 of over 30,000 deaths and the loss of all they gained, the Tet Offensive attacks by the communists were effective because they would shock U.S. officials and the American public. They were really, you know, beginning to see, you know, what these, how, how these people would fight, how they would stop at nothing to take control of this nation, how they didn't care about holidays or whatever. They would fucking pop out of tunnels. They're going to attack you during a holiday. There, there's no rules on the Viet Cong side. They would begin the uh, gradual withdrawal of troops for the U.S., while most of the fighting during the Tet Offensive lasted just for about a week, the Battle of Way, also known as the Siege of Way, lasted from January 30th to March 3rd, 1968. Before this battle, South Vietnamese were desperately canceling the Tet holiday leave, recalling their soldiers to fight in the massive Tet Offensive that had just been launched. The city of Way was ill-prepared for the Viet Cong and the PAVN when they attacked the third largest South Vietnamese city, nearly half a million people living there. The city of Way should have been well-fortified and defended by the U.S. and ARVN, so it was only miles from the DMZ was an important stop on Highway One, uh, the Highway 1 supply line that U.S. forces depended on. It was also a base for U.S. Supply, supply boats, but regardless, it was unprepared for the communist attack. The scale of the Battle of Way was one of the largest of the Vietnam War. A total of 18 battalions, 11 from the ARVN, 5 from the U.S. Army, and 3 from the U.S. Marine battalions took on 10 battalions of PAVN and Viet Cong. The fighting continued to escalate, and during the week of February 11th through the 17th, the highest number of U.S. soldiers would perish in the war with 543 dead that week. From February to March of 1968, the American forces along the South Vietnamese ARVN forces clear the Viet Cong guerrillas out of the cities and the battles of Hue and Saigon. Then a terrible massacre occurs on March 16th, 1968 that would fuel a lot of protests later on back home. As part of a campaign of search and destroy operations in which soldiers would find enemy territories, destroy them, and then retreat, an unbelievably brutal massacre happened in the village of Mai Lai, Vietnam at the hands of U.S. soldiers. More than 500 unarmed men, women, and children were mutilated and executed by U.S. forces. Many women were raped as well. The U.S. government covered up the bloodbath for a year before it was leaked to the American press. One soldier, a sergeant, Michael Bernhardt, was at the scene and said this to a reporter. I saw them shoot an M79, which is a grenade launcher, into a group of people who were still alive. But it was mostly done with a machine gun. They were shooting women and children just like anybody else. Bernhardt continued, We met no resistance, and I only saw three captured weapons. We had no casualties. It was just like any other Vietnamese village. Old papasans, women, and kids. As a matter of fact, I don't remember seeing one military-age male in the entire place dead or alive. The U.S. troops from Charlie Company, led by Lieutenant William Calley, after killing the people, raping the women, and even killing livestock, burned the rest of the village to the ground. The public backlash over the war was becoming much too much for President Johnson. In March of 1968, he decided he would not run for re-election, and he would halt the bombing in Vietnam north of the 20th parallel. The Democratic Convention of 1968 was another cultural turning point in America's support of the Vietnam War. The convention was held... August 26 to 29 in Chicago, Illinois, 
as delegates flowed into the International Amphitheater to nominate a Democratic Party presidential candidate, tens of thousands of protesters swarmed the streets to rally against the Vietnam War and the political status quo. By the, and, and then they were, you know, met harshly with uh, police officers, which fueled even more protests. By the time Vice President Herbert uh, Humphrey received the presidential nomination, the strife within the Democratic Party was laid bare. The streets of Chicago had seen riots and bloodshed involving protesters, police, and bystanders alike, radically changing America's political and social landscape. The event would have little immediate effect on the Vietnam War. Nixon would go on to defeat the Democrats and the year 1968 would have the most U.S. casualties to date at 16,592 dead that year alone. But the demonstrations revealed a powerful or in a powerful visual way that support for the Vietnam conflict, especially among the youth of America, was rapidly eroding. Republican candidate Richard Nixon becomes the next president to have to figure out Vietnam in November of 1968. He's elected for his campaign rhetoric to end the war, to end the draft, to restore law and order. He wins with 301 electoral votes compared to Humphrey's 191. George C. Wallace, an independent, snagged 46 electoral votes. While the U.S. was not officially at war with Cambodia, in March of 1969 through May of 1970, President Nixon ordered Operation Menu, a series of secret bombings by U.S. B-52 bombings or bombers targeting communist base camps and supply zones in Cambodia. The bombings were supposed to be kept secret, but the New York Times revealed the operation on May 9th, 1970, creating more public backlash. In May of 1969, a battle occurred that was so gruesome and wasteful with human life, it would be forever called Hamburger Hill. The fight happened at the App Biap Mountain about a mile away from Laos, Hill 937. The App Biap Mountain was actually a 3,000-foot-tall hill in a remote valley in South Vietnam. In an attempt to cut off the North Vietnamese from entering Laos, U.S. paratroopers attacked the heavily entrenched North Vietnamese. For over 10 days, the battle would rage on uh, this particular hill. U.S. troops would capture the site, but they would then abandon it days later, like I mentioned before. Listen to a lot of guys talk about getting frustrated with that with this particular battle. The sniper fire was so all-encompassing that one U.S. Hamburger Hill survivor called it a human meat grinder. Another soldier who fought in this battle, a 19-year-old, told reporters, have you ever been inside a hamburger machine? We just got cut to pieces by extremely accurate machine gun fire. Journalists who flocked to the area to report on this epic firefight would name the brutal battle Hamburger Hill. The graphic, all-too-telling name would spread. Many minds would wonder aloud at this point, what was the point of all this death? The high casualties of Hamburger Hill and in the many battles fought around this time came from the North Vietnamese fighting strategy of hit-and-move guerrilla tactics. They knew they didn't have to win any battles to win the war. They just needed to outlast the Americans. As their own anti-war protests and the increasingly complicated U.S. political situation got out of hand. On June 8, 1969, the North Vietnamese formed the Provincial Revolutionary Government of the Republic of South Vietnam, PRG. This acted as a shadow government supported by the communists in the South and negotiated independently from both North and South Vietnam later at the 1973 Paris Peace Accords and would go on to be the provincial government of South Vietnam after the U.S. and Republic of Vietnam forces were defeated. Now let's talk about Woodstock. Talk about what's going on back home again. During three days in August of 1969, the largest of several anti-war flavored music festivals took place on a dairy farm in Bethel, New York. Half a million people participated in the three-day event billed as an Aquarian experience, three days of peace and music. The event will be tied to the counterculture movement of the 1960s forever and remembered, of course, as the Woodstock Music Festival. Uh, when I think of Woodstock, I've watched uh, numerous Woodstock documentaries over my adult life, listened to a lot of Woodstock-type uh, soundtracks. The Vietnam protest song I think of 
when I think of Woodstock, like like the most obvious protest song is a song called the I Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die Rag by Country Joe and the Fish. This is the band straight out of Berkeley, straight out of the heart of the counterculture revolution. I don't know if you remember this song, but the, the big key kind of little uh, chorus part is, and it's one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. Next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven, open up the pearly gates. Oh, ain't no time to wonder why. Whoopee, all gonna die. I mean, that's, that's pretty to the point. These lyrics pretty much summed up the counterculture movement's assessment of the Vietnam conflict. What the fuck are we fighting for? Why are we dying there? On September 2nd, 1969, Ho Chi Minh dies of a heart attack in Hanoi. He would never see his beloved Vietnam united, but he carved the path toward unification more than anyone. On November 15th, 1969, the anti-Vietnam sentiment grows further in the U.S. And what was described as the largest anti-war protest in history, uh, as far as ones that went down in a mostly peaceful way, in Washington, D.C., an estimated 500,000 people gathered to protest the draft, the war, and Nixon's unfulfilled promise to get the U.S. out of Vietnam. The New York Times described the crowd as predominantly youthful and as a mass, mass gathering of the moderate and radical left, old-style liberals, communists, and pacifists, and a sprinkling of the violent new left. While violence did break out towards the end of the event, the New York Times reported the predominant event of the day was that of a great and peaceful army of dissent moving through the city. So again, man, pressure is building for politicians to call it off. Changes to the structure of the draft are made on December 1st, 1969. We haven't talked in depth about the draft yet. Now's probably a good time. Uh, conscription of young men into the military ranks was a common practice in many of the wars the United States had participated in prior to Vietnam. Most of the initial Vietnam draftees came from rural towns and farming communities, and about 80% of U.S. forces came from poor or working-class families. The other 20% came from the middle class, and approximately 0% came from the richy rich families. Uh, the criticism of the initial draft uh, inequities led to the first draft lottery since 1942. On December 1st, 1969, the Selective Service System conducted two lottery drawings to determine the order in which men born between 1944 and 1950 would be called to report for possible duty. So to go to war, it was luck of the draw, and it all depended on your birth date. It was called a lottery, but really it was an anti-lottery. When you won, you lost, unless you really wanted to risk your life fighting a losing battle in the jungles of Vietnam. Uh, the government put birth dates in 366 capsules, even leap year babies weren't safe, then placed them into a big glass container and played who gets to be shot at in the jungle bingo. The little blue capsules were picked out of the bowl by hand one at a time. The first date chosen was September 14th, and it was assigned a one. The second date was April 24th, and it was given a two. Each day was assigned a number up to 366. The lower the number, the higher the likelihood of serving Uncle Sam in his war against Uncle Ho. There was another draft that day as well. The second lottery dealt with letters instead of numbers. The first three letters they pulled were J, G, and D. The last letters pulled were E, B, and V. And basically all of this meant that if your name was John J. Jones and you were born on September 14th, you were almost certainly going to Vietnam. Your next step was visiting your draft board, which usually was uh, comprised of people in your community. This put the draft board members in an awkward position. They had the power to decide who would stay, who would go to war. You can imagine the pressure from their own families, relatives, friends, people in the community to exempt these young men. The most important aspect of the draft that changed in 1969 was the age priority. From the eligible 18 to 25-year-old range, the previous drafts had taken the oldest men first. Now it was reversed, and local draft boards could call the youngest first. 
This was meant to help young men, in theory, so that they didn't have to wait for years to find out what their draft fate would be. It was intended to keep the military service from affecting their careers and family lives as much. Draft lotteries would occur again in 1970, 71, 72. The last man was conscripted December 7th, 1972, and the draft was abolished in early 1973. However, the Selective Service continued to assign draft priority numbers from 1973 to 1975, just in case, just to make a lot of people fucking nervous. From 1964 to 1973, about 27 million American men were eligible for military service, and 2,215,000 of them were brought in to serve. About 15.4 million deferments were granted. Most of the deferments were for education, some for mental or physical issues, some for family problems. More than 300,000 people deserted or dodged the draft. In 1964 alone, many young men illegally burned their draft cards in protests. Around 30,000 Americans immigrated to Canada to avoid the draft between 1962 and 1972. In the early 70s, resistance to the draft reached its peak. In 1972, there were 200,600 induction refusal legal cases. Punishment for draft dodging included imprisonment and forced military service. Uh, the military service part cracks me up. So, you know, being drafted was part of the punishment to, to, for avoiding being drafted makes uh, very little sense. We hereby find you guilty of dodging the draft and you are sentenced to be drafted. To me, that feels like punishment uh, for theft being paying for the shit you tried to steal, right? We find you guilty of trying to steal a 20-ounce bottle of Coca-Cola. You will now have to pay a fine of $1.99 plus sales tax. Uh, September of 1974, President Gerald Ford grants conditional amnesty to draft dodgers if they served in the military for six to 24 months. And on his first day of office in 1977, in a controversial act, President Jimmy Carter officially offers a full pardon to any draft dodgers who requested one. What I find interesting about people fleeing to Canada to avoid being drafted is that there are a number of ways to legally avoid the draft without having to leave the U.S. Uh, nine ways we'll go over here. Uh, number one, conscientious objector. You could be a conscientious objector. If you were a member of what were considered peace churches like the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mennonites, the Amish, and the Quakers, you didn't have to go. Clergymen and missionaries were also exempt. For example, former presidential candidate Mitt Romney deferred service while he spent two years in France as a missionary for the Mormon church. Uh, there were other forms of conscientious objection, but any dishonest conscientious, uh, Jesus, any dishonest, conscientious, con Jesus Christ, fucking whatever, the opposite of conscientious objection was illegal. Uh, seems easy to fake if you really wanted to not go. You know, just, are, are you sure? You're a Jehovah's Witness? 100%. 100%. Uh, I witness uh, Jehovah all the time. I witness Jehovah constantly. I witness Jehovah when I'm reading the my Jehovah Bible. Uh, I witness Jehovah when I'm homeless in the doors, not fighting in Vietnam, lighting up a joint. Uh, definitely witness Jehovah when I'm knocking Veronica's back out after a few joints listening to Skinner. <laughs> uh, we both witness him. Can I go? Uh, another, another reason, the second reason here is you could have a health condition that could get you out of the military. Despite the huge demand for meat sacks, the military had a lot of strict guidelines when it came to a soldier's health. Even common treatable conditions like ulcers and hepatitis, anemia, could keep somebody from serving. President Trump was given a Vietnam medical deferment for having a bone spur in his heel. Another way to get out, uh, not, not, not a not so perfect way, was to fake an illness or injury. If you're in perfect health, you know, why not fake it? People would stay awake for days before their physical screenings, do lots of illegal drugs, binge drink, or come up with all sorts of ways to fake unhealthiness. Ted Nugent once said he shit his pants to avoid service in Vietnam, like literally shit him. A guy's grandpa knows that he smashed his leg with a bat. Number four, uh, as far as ways to skip the draft, was if your kids needed you financially. So it was a mad dash for millions of teenage boys 
to impregnate their high school sweethearts as quickly as possible. The old forgot to pull out exemption clause. The Ed's got a lower draft priority over single men and childless husbands. So if you're going to avoid Vietnam, attempting to fuck your way out of the draft sounds like the most fun way to get out of it. The next one, number five, seems like a no-brainer for anyone really wanting to avoid the war. Just say that you're gay. Back in the days of Vietnam, it was okay to ask and also to tell. And if the draft officials didn't ask, many straight men reportedly wore women's underwear to drive the point home at medical exams that they were not heterosexual. Other men uh, were so homophobic, they would rather move to Canada as opposed to just lying to a stranger about lusting over a little cock. Kind of an interesting cultural note there. Number six, going to college could keep you out of the military. A few examples of people who did this, who received educational deferments were Bill Clinton, Joe Biden, Dick Cheney. Number seven, you could have an important job. Some civilians had jobs that were deemed reserved occupations, essential to the war effort. It's not easy to have an essential job when you're 19, but if you had a job that the government deemed necessary to a nation's war effort, you could avoid the draft. I doubt comic or podcaster would have qualified. No, 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 I can't, I can't, I can't go. I, I have to stay here and write Ed Kemper jokes. Please, what's gonna happen to Bojangles if I leave? Who's gonna praise him for being a good boy? Who's gonna butcher words and then get ridiculously angry about it and have to comment on it all the time? Who's gonna do that if, if I get drafted? Uh, number eight, to avoid the draft, at least before August 26, 1965, was very simple. Just get married. Uh, President Johnson quietly eliminated this all-too-easy-to-take loophole. Nine was to volunteer. This is the most important way to avoid the draft, was to volunteer to go to war, which might sound crazy at first. Uh, but men received credit for enlisting. So instead of, like, you know, cutting ears off of some, some villager outside of Hanoi, you could ship the Navy its pencils to, you know, as a supply sergeant based in like Indiana. My grandpa actually did this. My grandpa Ward told me he did this with the Korean War. He signed up to be an aircraft mechanic because he said he he was positive that he was going to get drafted if he didn't. And he was sure that if he got drafted, he would end up carrying a rifle in the jungle. He didn't want to do that. So he ran out and just volunteered to be a mechanic. After reading about all these ways to get out of the fighting, huge props to the men who did not choose any of them and did fight in those jungles. Man, that takes a brave, patriotic, possibly crazy son of a bitch to make that intense of a choice. Okay, let's get back to the timeline. Facing the demands from increasing numbers of anti-war protesters and a lack of support in Washington, the Nixon administration greatly reduces the number of American troops in Vietnam. In 1969, there were over half a million U.S. soldiers on the ground. By 1972, he'd gotten that number down to 69,000. Uh, Henry Kissinger, that top-ranked Illuminati lizard sorcerer, the guy living on Ormus, secretly began peace negotiations with the Hanoi officials in Paris in February of 1970. On May 3rd, 1970, more bad press for Vietnam occurs in the U.S. Four students are killed, nine others are wounded in Ohio's Kent State shooting. National Guardsmen open fire on student anti-war demonstrators at Kent State University. That's not doing a, a, lot, a lot of good for the public backlash against the war. In June of 1970, Congress, under massive pressure from the public now, repeals the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, restricts the president's ability to conduct war in Vietnam. Despite the lack of congressional support, the U.S. military not ready to concede defeat quite yet. In another attempt to cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail, that military supply route running from North Vietnam through Laos and Cambodia to South Vietnam that sent weapons, manpower, ammunition, other supplies from communist-led North Vietnam to their supporters in the South during the Vietnam War, from January through March of 1971, the U.S.-backed ARVN troops invaded Laos in what they called Operation Lam Son 719. The ARVN suffered heavy losses, were forced to retreat. 
A series of articles in the New York Times comes out in June of 1971 that further erodes U.S. support for the Vietnam War. The articles summarize leaked Defense Department documents about the handling and planning of the war in Vietnam. The Times would call them the Pentagon Papers. The report clearly shows the corrupt nature of the U.S. government's increased involvement in the war, one example being the damning information about the JFK administration being an active part of the overthrowing and assassination of South Vietnamese President uh, Go Dinh Diem in 1963. The Pentagon Papers amount to three volumes equaling 7,000 pages of narrative and documents. Between March and October of 1972, the People's Army of Vietnam launches a massive Easter offensive against U.S. and Republic of Vietnam forces that further tilts the war in their favor. The North Vietnamese gain control of more South Vietnamese territory. Starting on May 9th of 1972, running through October 23rd, 1972, Operation Linebacker is launched. Operation Linebacker, the most intense air offense and largest bombing effort since Operation Rolling Thunder ended in 1968. Operation Linebacker was meant to slow down supply transportation for the Easter offensive and was launched on South Vietnam March 30th, 1972. Operation Linebacker 1, later Linebacker 2, would be overseen by General John Vogt of the U.S. Air Force and the South Vietnamese Air Force side. The North Vietnamese had Russian, but MiGs and tons of other communists, or excuse me, the North Vietnamese had Russian MiGs and tons of other communist-built war accessories. Operation Linebacker Linebacker 2 in December of 1972 would pit the B-52s and American jet fighters against a large amount of anti-aircraft batteries, on the ground and Soviet jets in the air. The mission was to bomb important fuel storage tanks and supply depots. While lots of bombs were dropped, fire started. Operation Linebacker eventually just failed to displace North Vietnamese troops. On January 27, 1973, the Selective Service is ordered to end the draft. The U.S. military becomes an all-volunteer fighting force. Clear indication that Washington, D.C. no longer believes this war can be won. Also on January 27th, the Paris Peace Accords between the North and South Vietnam, or North and South Vietnamese, signed by President Nixon, which ends direct U.S. involvement in Vietnam. The ceasefire accepted by both sides, but even as the U.S. troops are evacuated, North Vietnamese military officials plot to invade and overtake South Vietnam and unify the country under communism. As part of the Paris Peace Accords, from February to April 1973, the North Vietnamese return 591 U.S. POWs in what is called Operation Homecoming. John McCain, who had spent five years as a prisoner of war, is among those returned during this period, R.I.P. McCain Hale Nimrod. On August 9th of 1974, President Nixon resigns before his almost certain impeachment after the Watergate scandal is uncovered. Nixon's vice president, Gerald Ford, then becomes president. Ford would be the fifth president to have to handle the complicated foreign and domestic issue of Vietnam. You can count Truman as six if you really want to. In January of 1975, Ford ruled out any further military involvement by U.S. forces in the region. And then by April of 1975, the war is coming to an end. The fall of Saigon happens on April 30th, 1975, when communist forces captured the capital city of South Vietnam. U.S. Air Force and Marine helicopters forced to transport more than 1,000 American civilians, almost 7,000 South Vietnamese refugees out of the city in an 18-hour mass evacuation. By July of 1975, Vietnam is a unified communist nation that we still call the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. And by 1977, they were admitted to the United Nations. Then in 1979, Vietnam invaded Cambodia, but that's a different suck for a different day. And this now takes us out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. My 
My God, Meat Sacks, that was a long timeline to do in one take. So that was the Vietnam War, bloody and complicated. Some estimates have the total death count of the war uh, just in Vietnamese civilian lives at more than 2 million. Up to 250,000 South Vietnamese soldiers died fighting with the U.S. 58,220 Americans roughly uh, lost their lives in the war. Vietnam would later release that an estimated 1.1 million North Vietnamese and Viet Cong fighters died in bombings or battle. But not even those staggering numbers illustrate the, the full scope of the war, its cost. A huge number of American Vietnam casualties didn't truly reveal themselves until the war was over. These are the sufferers of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. I, I, it makes me think again about what we said earlier about the, the amount of fighting like you know, each year, well over 200 days of fighting per year, just that constant worry about being attacked, constantly being attacked, gave a lot of veterans PTSD. Psychological surveys again estimate that some 271,000 Vietnam War vets have PTSD. PTSD is an anxiety-related mental health condition that is triggered by a terrifying event. And those guys over there lived through terrifying events if they did live pretty much every day. In one study, almost 30 years after the war, 12% interviewed said they still had PTSD. Another major post-war problem attributed to the Vietnam War was a rise in hard drug abuse amongst veterans. A 1971 Defense Department report said over a quarter of the U.S. troops had been snorting cocaine or shooting up heroin in Vietnam. Over a quarter... Even their own officers supplied them with drugs in the form of prescription amphetamines. One study says that the armed forces used 225 million tabulates of stimulants between 1966 and 1969. And a lot of those guys didn't just quit taking that shit when they came home. Another problem veterans faced after the war was assimilating into a culture that had changed dramatically in just a few years. While soldiers were fighting in a jungle across the Pacific, young men and women their same age back home were dropping acid, smoking weed, enjoying free love. Hey, Lucifina! Listen to CCR, The Doors, The Mamas and the Papas, other bands singing songs not exactly praising Vietnam. While hippie kids were rebelling against their parents and partying across the country, soldiers the same age were watching their friends die. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C. takes over two acres to archive the over 58,000 names engraved on the memorial wall of those that died. How do you blend those two very different early life experiences? Sadly, in a lot of cases, you didn't. A lot of vets came home to a country they no longer knew, and a lot of brave veterans grew rightfully resentful after returning home to a country full of people who not only had been protesting the war they were risking their lives fighting for, but also protesting them specifically as well. Spitting in the faces of kids who've been drafted. How fucking ignorant is that? So what happened to Vietnam after the war? Well, obviously they continued on as a socialist communist nation, closed themselves off from the West, remained open to China and the Soviet bloc and other communist nations. In 1986, new economic policies that strayed from the communist ideals of earlier years and more towards liberal economic policies started to win out a little bit around uh, some certain communist nations, including Vietnam. Then in 1992, a new Vietnamese constitution laid out even more economic liberties. Basically, Vietnam opened their borders to trading with the world, including the establishment of full diplomatic relations with the U.S. in 1995. President Clinton visited the nation in 2000, and by 2007, the U.S. had partnered with the Vietnamese government to study the effects of Agent Orange used during the Vietnam War. So, is Vietnam, after all it went through, a happy little socialist uh, nation today? Uh, no, I would say no. It, it, and again, it might officially be called the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, but to me, it's a, it's a communist nation in practice. And, and communism, I believe firmly, is just fucking terrible. And I get emails from communist-leaning listens every fucking time I take a shit on communism, and I'll tell you this, uh, Bojangles prints each and every one of those out and then takes a piss on them. Uh, good boy, Bojangles. Because you know what I've never gotten? A single email or message giving me concrete, like one concrete example of a communist nation just fucking thriving, 
full of happy, fulfilled, freedom-loving people. You know why? Because there isn't one. Some people try and point towards China, but in 2014, for example, it ranked 177th out of 180 countries in the annual World Press Freedom Index. That is pretty terrible. And to me, happiness and freedom go hand in hand. The U.S. is only 48th. That's scary, but a lot better than 177th. Uh, Norway, Finland, and Sweden, number one, two, and three, by the way. Scandinavia, always always killing it. Uh, people in general in Vietnam today don't seem to be free or happy. They ranked 176th out of 180 on that same index, right near the very bottom, right? The current government of Vietnam actually created a law in 2013 that prevents Vietnamese people from discussing current affairs on the internet. That's not a good sign of a happy country. Uh, Vietnam currently ranks 128th out of 186 countries measured in the Heritage Foundation's Economic Freedom Index for 2019. The U.S. ranks in at number 12. Way better. Way, way better. So while the U.S. didn't win uh, that conflict, while you can say it was fought to make the military-industrial complex a lot of money, and I'm sure it partly was, while maybe a lot of protests against the war were morally justified, and, and, and I'm sure they were, in my opinion, the war was a noble fight to attempt to provide freedom to a land that now has very little as well. So thanks to any veterans who fought there, you risked your lives in a valiant attempt to bring freedom to people who you'd never even met. So what did we learn overall today? Well, we learned about the Vietnamese being invaded time and time again and always eventually taking their country back. We got a nice overview of what led up to the Vietnam conflict, touching on its major battles, and we learned how it ended. We brushed over some of the equipment, the tunnels, the major players involved. And any Vietnam vet suckers Again, thank you for your service. You were given an impossible mission and, and you were brave as hell to even head over there. If you have any firsthand accounts of fighting or protesting this war or you, or you know somebody who did either, please send them to bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com so we can get some first or secondhand experiences to add a more human element to this suck. So I know it was a lot of dates and numbers for the most part. Uh, I will end this by, by humanizing a little bit here today. Here are, here are two letters U.S. soldiers in Vietnam sent back home. This first letter was written by Stanley Homisky. So gross, Polish name. Blech. But, okay, veteran, so blech, I guess kind of a wash. Uh, and again, new, new listener, that's, that's a long-running stupid joke. Okay, but Stanley writes, Dear Roberta, today is probably the worst day I have ever lived in my entire short life. Once again, we were in contact with Charlie, and once again, we suffered losses. The losses we had today hit home as my best friend in this shithole was killed. He was only 22 years old and was going on R&R on the 1st of June to meet his wife in Hawaii. I feel that if it was only half a second sooner in pulling the trigger, oh, excuse me, I feel that if I was only half a second sooner in pulling the trigger, he would still be alive. Oh, what terrible guilt to carry Strange how short a time half a second is, the difference between life and death. This morning, we were talking about how we were only two years different in age and how we both had gotten married before coming to this place. You know, I can still feel his presence to write this letter, and I hope that I'm able to survive and leave this far behind me. If there is a place called hell, this surely must be it, and we must be the devil's disciples doing all his dirty work. I keep asking myself if there is a God, then how the hell could young men with so much to live for have to die? I just hope that his death is not in vain. I look forward to the day when I will take my R&R. If I play my cards right, I should be able to get it for Hawaii, so our anniversary will be in that time frame. The reason I say this is by September, I'll have more than enough time and country to get my pick of places and dates. I promise I will do everything necessary to ensure that I make that date, and I hope that tomorrow is quiet. 
We will be going into base camp soon for our three-day stand down. I will try to write you a longer letter at that time. Please don't worry too much about me, as if you won't, for I will take care of myself and look forward to the day I am able to be with you again. Love, Stan. Well, luckily, Stan lived. He served with B Troop, 3-4th Cavalry, Cavalry, 25th Infantry Division, ending his tour as the Commo Sergeant. He was married shortly before shipping out, stayed married to the same woman for over 30 years, has two children, a daughter, Christine, who is a doctor in Chattanooga, and a son, Scott, who works for a telephone company. I'll look at one more letter. This is a short letter written by Larry Jackson, September 11th, 1969. Larry writes, Dear Mom and Dad, Getting short, Mom, coming home pretty soon. Going to quit flying soon. Too much for me now. I went in front of a board and will know soon if I made it. I have flown 1,500 hours now, and in those hours, I could tell you a lifetime story. I have been put in for a medal again, but this time I have seen far beyond of whatever you will see. That is why I'm going to quit flying. I dream of Valerie's hand touching mine, telling me to come home, but I wake up and it's some sergeant telling me I have to fly. Today, I am 21, far away, but coming home older. Love, Larry. Well, Larry would never see his mom or be touched by Valerie again. He would be shot down within 24 hours of writing that letter. War really is hell. Thanks to any of you who have fought in any military conflict. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. One major takeaway, number one here, from the Vietnam War is that the French did all of this. It's France's fault. They were messing around in Southeast Asia for over a century before the Vietnam War, and they're fucking the worst, and we should nuke that entire country to dust right fucking now. Nuke the French! Kill them all! I'm sure my neighbors love hearing that. No, that's not it. The French weren't quite the colonizers that England was, but France touched just about every landmass on Earth with their Napoleonic Code and their armies and their cheeses, and they gave a lot of people a lot of problems. Number two, another takeaway is that Ho Chi Minh and many of his military commanders were pretty brilliant. Got to give credit where credit is due. In battle after battle, the larger and more advanced U.S. forces set out to complete a mission only to have it thwarted or even turned against them over and over again. The Viet Cong and North Vietnamese armies used a vast, vast tunnel system built during the first Indochina War to booby trap, ambush, and stealthily perform the guerrilla warfare against their anti-communist aggressors. Number three, Jim Morrison's dad was in charge of the Gulf of Tonkin incident. How weird is that? Jim Morrison was, for all intent and purpose, one of the one of the goddamn leaders of the anti-war movement. What are the odds of that? Number four, Congress does not need to approve a war for America to wage war. The Vietnam War was never legally a war. Scary to think about, you know, this uh, checks and balances legislative loophole that we have here in the United States. Number five, new info. Let's talk about Australia. Fighting alongside the U.S. Marines and Army troops as well as the South Vietnamese troops were the Aussies. Approximately 60,000 Australians served in the Vietnam War with 521 being killed, more than 3,000 wounded. The Vietnam War started for Australians in 1962 when they sent in 30 military advisors. They exited the theater of war in 1972, making it the longest commitment of combat forces in Australia's history. And that just changed recently with the war in Afghanistan. It still is Australia's largest contribution of military forces since World War II in any military conflict. Similar attitudes to the American protest movement were had by the Australian citizens throughout the war. While Australia began hell-bent on stopping communism in the early years of the war, the desire to end the war got stronger and stronger uh, for them, just like it did for the U.S. until it finally ended. So special thank you to Australia and any Australian suckers who also fought in Vietnam. Time suck. Top five takeaways. 
So that's it, Meat Sacks. The Vietnam War sucked. Now it has been sucked. I know we couldn't cover it all, not even really close, but I feel like I learned a ton about Vietnam that I didn't know. Uh, big thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Camp, Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dobner, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Time Suck High Priest Alex Dugan, the guys at Bit Elixir, Danger Brain, Axis Apparel. Thanks to the Lily Twins, Twin Hammers of Knowledge, Hail Nimrod, and huge thanks to Zach Scriptkeeper Flannery for his immense help on this suck. Uh, if you haven't linked over to the Time Suck Discord channel from the app or website, highly recommend it if you want to engage with some pretty active suckers. You can also check out the Culturally Curious private Facebook group to meet friends, talk about weird shit and more. Link to those in the episode description, closing in on 9,000 members in the Facebook group. Uh, now let's talk real quick about next week's topic. On the next episode of Time Suck, episode 140, we visit the mythical times of wizards, dragons, and larger-than-life heroes of British folklore. Man, just in time for, uh, while, while Game of Thrones is wrapping up, how perfect is that? The Space Lizards voted. So we get to delve into the largely fictional tales of some Western, some of Western history's most famous mythological characters. We're going to be sucking on King Arthur and his goofy hat wearing magically endowed Buddy Merlin. So a little fun change of pace. The Arthur legends were created from the works of several authors from different parts of Europe starting in the 5th century. The idealized version of a benevolent European king and the honorable notions of knights originated in these stories. Besides the lives of Merlin and King Arthur, we will examine the lore surrounding dragons, famous swords, the Knights of the Round Table, Camelot, the origins of chivalry. We'll also learn about ancient castles, medieval writers who contributed to the Arthur myths, and the modern-day influence of these legends. Who was King Arthur? Was he a real person or an amalgam of real persons given an extraordinary tale? Did the ancient storytellers make all of it up, or is there some truth to any of it? Was there a Camelot? Did Arthur pull a sword from a stone to become king? Where did that tale come from? And what if Merlin? Was his father actually a horny demon? How many other wizards were running around in ancient Britain? Did Merlin have wizard competition? Electrico! What was the job market like for wizards? What sort of credentials were required? If Merlin was the Michael Jordan of turning people into toads, who was Dr. J? Who was a draft bust? Who was Adam Morrison? Sorry, Zach fans. So many questions. We're excited to get into the details and see why these tales have lasted for centuries next week. Time now for Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. Going way back with Logan Allman with an IRA update. Uh, hello, Honorable Reverend Dr. Cummins, Keeper of the Suck and Petter of Bojangles. Longtime fan of your comedy, still trying to catch up on the suck. Listen to your IRA episode and you said something that didn't really match up with what you'd said in the past. You basically said the IRA lost, right, the Irish Republican Army, in their fight against, uh, you know, England. The IRA lost, they should stop fighting, accept it, and assimilate. This seems to be the opposite attitude you have based on the colonization of Africa and the American Indians losing their land, a.k.a. being conquered with the, by the U.S. I also want to say as a Christian, I understand your views on religion as a whole because it seems like you grew up around what I call hateful Christians. Christ's message is one of love, and we are even called to love our enemies. Martin Luther King Jr. was a perfect example of this. Just want to say I respect your ability to self-reflect and apologize if you go too far. Keep doing what you're doing. Pet Bojangles for me. Thanks, Logan. Well, thank you, Logan. Yes, I was raised around hateful Christians, and there are a lot of very loving Christians out there in the Time Suck community who are some of the best people on earth. Love having them a uh, part of our group. As far as the IRA goes, uh, yeah, you fucking got me. So uh, I love including this here. I, I, you know, because I do support African nations rising up against colonial oppressors, and I guess that is exactly what kind of goes on in Northern Ireland. 
you know, I guess similar to what's happened now with American Indians, though, it just doesn't make sense to me based on numbers. I think that's where the difference is for me. Like, there doesn't seem to be enough Irish people who want to break from England to make the struggle worth it, if that makes sense. Like, if there was hundreds of thousands of people protesting, and if the IRA had tens and tens of thousands of soldiers, then it's a very different argument to me. But if it's like 20 dudes with some pipe bombs, it's like, fucking, come on, dudes, stop. Also, uh, while Africans are still being uh, blatantly exploited, I don't think that's true for American Indians or the Irish. You know, they're, they're not being treated, at least from what I can see, like obvious second-class citizens in their own land, at least not officially. But I guess officially, that's not what's happening in Africa either. Uh, so you raise a good point. I don't know if I have the best answer for my different opinion, other than just the numbers situation. Other than, you know, it's a very small group of people who want to keep fighting for independence against a much larger, mar- larger group of people who seem cool with the new situation. Uh, thank you for the food for thought. Now, a personal KGB update from Matthew, uh, oof, I don't know, no pronunciation guy for this name, Gibbets, <laughs> G-I-E-B-I-T-S, Mr. Gibbets, hello, Mr. Gibbets, I'm guessing that's not at all how your name is, but it's fun to say, well, if it isn't Matthew Gibbets, uh, Matthew writes, <laughs> sorry, Matt, by the way, all hail, King Master Sucker, your story on the KGB touched me personally. Uh, first, I am of third-generation Hungarian descent. Uh, both of my fa- father's parents fled Budapest uh, in the night. Wait, both of my... P- Wait a minute. <laughs> a lot of sense. Unless one's not biological. I don't know how you were born from two fathers. Both of my father's parents... I'll say... Let's say both of my parents. Both of my parents... You know what? I think you just flipped the words. <laughs> both of my parents' fathers... Well, Mr. Gibbets, the only man on earth to be born from two weens. Little docking and poof, there you are, Mr. Gibbets. No, let's flip it around. Both of my parents' fathers fled Budapest in the 1900s, 1910s to head to America to find a better life. They eventually met, got married, and had my wonderful father as well as three other children. Flash forward to the 1970s. My father was a U.S. Navy airman and radio operator who would spy on the Russian military in the KGB in North Africa. Eastern Europe and in the Pacific. That is interesting as hell. He would translate Russian code into English and send the intel up the chain of command, ultimately to the CIA. He would tell me stories of falling asleep, translating code and waking up with the whole message translated. He climbed up the ranks throughout his career, even received civilian awards for being one of the fastest translators of Morse code in the world. One day, sometime in the mid to late seventies, my father was taken into a Naval intelligence officer's office, told that his top secret clearance had been revoked. My dad, a career naval intelligence communications specialist, was needless to say pissed off, wanted to know why. All they told him was our last name showed up on a U.S. visa traveling to a communist country. Turns out my father's brother took a trip with his wife to Hungary during communist rule to see Budapest and the small town on the outskirts of the city my grandmother grew up in. My father, who had no idea about the trip, lost his top secret security clearance and was no longer able to work in the U.S. naval intelligence simply because his brother who he was estranged with at the time, to make it worse, decided to visit uh, a communist country controlled by the USSR. My dad has always been kind of bitter about that, but after hearing about John Walker on the KGB suck, I guess I understand why the U.S. pulled his clearance. My father and him were about the same age, rank, doing the same kind of reconnaissance at the time. I'm kind of annoyed they pulled my father's clearance as he is the most patriotic, bleeding-heart American I know, and somehow that little wart on Bojangles' butthole was able to portray his country just for money and ruin that for my dad. My father remained in the U.S. Navy and retired after 26 years at the rank rank of Commander Senior Chief in the mid-1990s, though after that incident, he was reassigned to a different department that was not involved with U.S. Navy intelligence. 
Anywho, thank you, Dan, for all you do. Absolutely love the podcast. Love seeing you at Helium when you come to Portland, Oregon. You are always willing to meet fans. Take a quick picture. That means a lot to us, Meat Sacks. Sorry for the long message. Look forward to seeing you soon. Hail Nimrod. May Bojangles rip the crusty wart of a human being, John Walker, off his butthole and bury him in Nimrod's backyard with his other forgotten bones. Your loyal sucker, Matt. Thank you, Matt. That was a, yeah, that was a very interesting update. And we actually had another personal KGB update come in from time sucker Connor Wilkinson, who spent time over in the, over in Russia. And he's letting us know that the secret police still around. Oh, great Dan Cummins, he writes. King of profanity and all that is informational and unholy. Excuse me. Lapdog of Bojangles, king of the suck. While I enjoy the colorful edge, your profane and coarse language. (laughs) I make a habit not to swear. No judgment, just a personal thing. However, I will say that in regards to this story, and then all caps, I shit you not. By the way, if you get two emails from me, I accidentally hit the enter button. Uh, Anyway, I can produce three witnesses that were with me and also detained at the time. The date is April 11th, 2016. I am in a town called Akadim Gorodak, a small town compromising of several universities located roughly 40 miles from the capital of Serbia, uh, Novorbisk. I, I didn't, I didn't, I can't remember how to say that one. But I was a mere three months from completing my two-year LDS mission. Um, I wasn't feeling good that morning. Woke up later than the other three elders, a term for male missionaries in the apartment. I finally got in the shower on 8 a.m. while everyone finished breakfast and got ready for some studying before going out to see if anyone was interested in chatting with us. Fun fact, no one wants to talk to anybody in Siberia, let alone a couple of American Mormon dudes. Hashtag lonely life. (laughs) I was just about to ask Chikatilo to lather my back (laughs) when the lights went out. Not an uncommon thing in Russia. Soviet electricity is 80% at best. Our circuit breakers were outside our door behind a panel in the stairwell. Again, crappy Soviet thinking. We were used to this happening. As I, and as I heard my companion... Another elder I was sort of assigned to serve with opened the door. I heard stomping on the stairs and yelling and a loud wrestling match just outside the pitch black bathroom. And then all caps, these motherfuckers turned our breakers off to lure us out of our apartment. Man, swearing just feels good sometimes. It does. Anyway, I get yanked from the shower in just a towel and it's April in Siberia. That day was a brisk 28 degrees Fahrenheit. I was freezing. They took our phones, passports, started taking pictures of everything, our clothes, our food in our fridge, our books of Mormon, everything. Oh, and I should mention that these guys were wearing large vests that said FSB on them, which is the successor to the, to the KGB as we learned. So we were detained in our own apartment for three hours on the basis of being there illegally and, and participating in illegal activities, although we had a visa to be there and a religious one at that. We didn't sign the papers they shoved on our faces because we were not wackadoodle morons. And eventually they left, giving us a date to appear in court or else we would for sure be deported. We, were, we weren't in the wrong. The local lawyer the church hires helped us appear and prove we weren't doing anything wrong. And the incident kind of was forgotten. Later, we learned that it wasn't a sanctioned raid. These guys just hated two things above everything else, Americans and Mormons. So we fell right into their crosshairs. Sorry for this being such a long letter again, but I wanted to share this with you. Keep bringing the wackadoodle Soviet sucks. Looking forward to the Vietnam suck. I'm interested to see what role Chikatilo played in that conflict. Uh, yeah, he didn't, he didn't show up with this one. As always, keep on sucking, Connor Wilkinson. Uh, okay, now, almost done. Uh, and thank you for sending that in, Connor. I love hearing those firsthand perspectives on things that uh, have to do with everything. Time suck. Now a special heartfelt message from generous sucker Tristan Hudson. Tristan writes, hello, Dan the man. I don't even know how to start this, but I guess here it is. First off, it was incredible to see you and Lindsay this weekend in San Francisco with a live suck in the stand-up show. I was the guy who brought you the banjo keychain 
and the man crate with the two Western gun holsters in there and the theme of the Doc Holiday suck for you and the Reverend Dr. Joe Dick, or I mean you and Lindsay. Instead, if you want to do some cowboy role play, hail is Safina. Put on the holster, Lindsay. <laughs> Actually, I, I, I'm not really into that. But uh, anyway, I wanted to explain why I wrote on the box, thanks for saving my life. I first saw you when I saw your performance. Oh, and th- before I get into this, thank you for those gifts. I thanked you on Instagram. Uh, thank you in the secret suck. I want to thank you here. That was so nice, man. So nice. And I, I'm pretty sure, I've been sending a lot of emails the last couple of days. I believe I emailed you back personally as well. I'm 99.9% positive I did. If I didn't, sorry. Okay, very generous. And then Tristan writes, anyway, I wanted to explain why I wrote in the box. Thanks for saving my life. I first saw you when I saw your performance on Live at Gotham many years ago. And let me say, it was a meet to pleasure you. I liked, liked the reference to the old joke. It was the first time I'd really listened to comedy and I instantly fell in love. It was exactly what, what I needed to escape the shit tornado that was my family life at the time. My dad was physically, emotionally, and psychologically abusive, and I lived in fear almost constantly. But when I could hide away or be alone, your comedy was there to make me laugh at my lowest, to bring me out of the darkness, and to fight my suicidal thoughts. I would have even turned on your station when I would go to bed so that I wouldn't lay in silence and let the, de- let the depression sink in more. Your jokes and comedy were like the armor that kept me standing through those years, and they were even there for me the day my father took his own life and the long road his suicide took me on. Still, I would throw on some stand-up as tears streamed down my face, and it would help me go through my healing process. Now today, I'm happy to report that I'm happily married, I'm an avid listener of The Suck, and I'm always either listening to comedy or podcasts, which makes my days that much better. I want to end this by saying that you've changed my life more than you know, semicolon, <laughs> a little joke reference there too. You, Dan Cohen, saved my life. And in a month, when I go to get one of my tattoos filled and I'm getting my time suck tattoo on my wrist to be a constant reminder of how much power laughter holds and how it can literally save people's lives and to remind me to never stop helping those I can and to not stop learning in this life as you do in the podcast. Sincerely, Space Lizard, Tristan Hudson. P.S. Sorry, I only had those two gifts. Oh man, those two gifts were fucking incredible. I was tight on money, but with mailing the other gifts I want to get for you and your crew. Well, you don't understand us anything else. What you gave us was insane. It was so over the top generous. And I'm so glad. And, and you guys, all of you just collectively uh, give my life so much meaning. So I'm glad it's a, it's a two-way street. I'm glad you're fucking kicking ass now. Uh, hail Nimrod. Love it. And, and finally, a very appropriate to this suck uh, tribute to a young man that was not a time sucker, but a young man uh, written, uh, a time sucker wrote in about him. A young man just as brave as any man who fought in Vietnam. Uh, This update was sent in by Patricia Hogoboom. Patricia writes, Hello, Reverend Dr. Suckington. One of the victims in the UNCC uh, shooting was a guy I went to high school with and graduated with, Riley Howell. I've been reading articles about this guy. He was possibly the best man I've ever known. He was truly amazing. It was a privilege to have known him. If you could have a moment of silence for him and the other victims of the shooting, that would mean a lot to me and all the other people in Asheville and Charlotte who knew him. Thank you, Patricia. And yes, if you don't know, on Tuesday, April 30th, Tristan Andrew Terrell is 22, is accused of standing up from a desk at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, pulling out a handgun and shooting at students, killing two and injuring four others. One of those fatalities was Riley Howell. Riley was an ROTC cadet. And when Tristan started shooting, Riley did not run or hide. He charged the gunman, the gunman absorbed three bullets, saved numerous lives, giving others a chance to subdue him as he died. Uh, What happened in that Charlotte classroom wasn't a war, just like Vietnam wasn't a war, technically, but Riley sure as hell served and sacrificed. Here is that moment of silence for him, Patricia. And that's all for today's Time Sucker Updates. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. 
We all did. That's all for today, suckers. Have a great week. Do not start a land war in Southeast Asia and keep on sucking. Smush, smush, smush. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.